Hello, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to the fourth session of Nick Land's Bitcoin and Philosophy Seminar. Nick, do you want to take over? Sure, sure. Um, hi, everybody. Um, so, uh, week four is a kind of transition, isn't it? Because we're we're crossing from what is in theory a block to another block next week, and I think the loose definition of what divides those blocks is the is the first four are really about working through the Satoshi Nakamoto paper, so we can assume that's there in the second four, which will be more topic-oriented. So I'm uh, going to pretend with as much conviction as I, as I can that we've dutifully worked our way through the whole uh, of the 2008 uh, paper by the end of today. and. Um, uh, to help me along with that, I think section 10 of that paper, which is really uh, can be treated, I think, as the as the final substantial section of the paper, um, ties up very well with a topic that I think has converged on the classroom this week. I've got three uh, three contributions from. Ryan, uh, Laura, and, and Jake, and all of them are circling very much, I think, the same issue, which I think at least to start off with is a, is a, is a good thing to hold on to, and it's, there's a lot of mileage in it, so I would be surprised if it, if it was to peter out or, or to get supplanted. And that's really uh, questions to do with identity. Um, the name of section 10 of the paper, or the label for it, is privacy, uh, which is obviously an incredibly laden term and goes off in itself in all kinds of directions. But it's only, I think, one aspect of this, of this topic. And sort of trying to muster a sense of the kind of threads that converge upon it is it's impressive to me how many different issues all connect up with it. So I thought I'd start off, um, I'll, I'll try and keep this intro relatively short, and as always, please don't be inhibited about jumping in at any point. But I thought I'd start off with just a bit of philosophical framing for it, to, to try to legitimate the uh, basic idea of this being a Bitcoin and philosophy course, and then pulling at some of these threads that are feeding into this notion of identity in the way that we're uh, coming across it here. So, um, again, totally standard in terms of what I'm uh, up to here. I will we'll start off with Kant on this. And the, the guiding element that he introduces to this, um, if you're coming to it out of the theoretical side of his philosophy, which I think everyone treats naturally as a starting point and as a question of theory and the understanding, the, the, the key element is the notion of the empirical ego. And the empirical ego ties together a lot of the things we're going to be talking about. And I think the way to introduce it, first of all, just again starting from the theoretical side of Kant's work, is that 
just as when you have you're dealing with an object and of course in you know the most sort of um the types of modern thinking very recent contemporary thinking that have that have got people very excited this sort of object oriented approach it very strongly takes the the theoretical objective side of the of the transcendental project and concentrates on the distinction between the phenomenal and noumenal object and i'm sure that sort of the ways that's developed and the the, the various directions that's taken people are, are kind of familiar to people i think the key thing to hold on to from it is that um the phenomenal object is structured transcendentally or as we would say if we're translating all this language into a more uh, electronic media context it's formatted so there's a system there's a transcendental element for Kant that's the transcendental subject in these electronic media it's dependent upon the particular protocol and system we're dealing with but there's a system that is the continuous constant element whatever particular ingredients one's dealing with that stamps a format onto all the elements that are in play in that system those elements then being the factual empirical elements that you're concerned with but all of them have a structure they're all within a particular theater with a particular structure and they can play out all kinds of different dramas within that theater but the structure of the theater is what you see if you take this transcendental retreat or step back and you look well, what is actually the continuous structure of this performance whatever we're seeing whatever the drama and light and distractions of the actual happenings what is the constant um, system of representation that we're seeing there and so once you make that step you have this distinction automatically between the phenomenal side of the object that part of it that is structured in this way that is on stage for us and that part of the object that to use a modern uh, or when I say modern I should say extremely recent mode of talking about this is withdrawn or withheld or in some ways beyond our phenomenal apprehension um, so that's basically obviously the the whole problematic of the first critique the things that follow from that but the important thing I think for us if we're now going to be talking on this question of identity and it's specifically a uh, subjective aspect um, is that you can reflect this back you can first of all reflect it back a little bit still at the level of the understanding and of theory into psychology where you get a distinction between an empirical and a transcendental subject and the empirical subject is simply the subject as it appears on the stage of one's transcendental perception of the world so one has one's own one stars in one's own in one's own play or at least appears in one's own play um, there might be people uh, who are commendably able to keep themselves totally in proportion but let's just say that um, that typically one takes a prominent role in one's own uh, drama of, of existence among a whole bunch of other identities that, are, that have relevant parts or, or cameos or walk-on parts or such like um, but obviously as soon as you look at it like this you know 
um, transcendentally that one's empirical ego is an appearance. It's not the real self necessarily any more than the, 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 than the noumenon, the, the withdrawn thing in itself is the real thing. So the empirical ego is not the real self, it's the self as it appears psychologically. It's just, you could say simply the psychological self. But if you reflect back further and in fact totally reverse the whole angle of orientation into Kant's practical philosophy, into, into the question of action and agency, one has this same splitting, the same rift or as we would call it in Heideggerian vocabulary, the same ontological difference between the empirical and the transcendental. And then Kant starts using the vocabulary very consistently of heteronomy and autonomy. And that perfectly lines with what we've just been talking about. The heteronomy is the empirical side of the person. It's the person as conditioned by anything we could want to name um, as being empirical forces in the world, um, social forces, heredity, uh, influences of friends, social environment, you name it. Um, anything that is actually part of any factual scientific account of the person for Kant and it belongs in this category of, of heteronomy. Whereas autonomy is the part of the self that is just like the withdrawn side of the object, is the withdrawn side of the subject, it's the part of the subject that is actually running the system of appearances but is not itself apparent and it's not, it's not apparent even on a certain level of practical activity insofar as that practical activity is governed by understandable impulses and motives and incentives drawn from the empirical world. Now, I'm not going to go much further with this on the philosophical level because it's the most fascinating, deepest, endless abyss, I think, in modern philosophy. You know, all the problems on the objective side are absolutely overwhelmed by the problems that come in on the subjective side. And, and within decades of, of Kant's work, already vastly radical transformations of this structure had, had been brought into play by people saying, well, what is assumed by the Kantian model of the, of the subject that is not actually in any way guaranteed by the principles of transcendental philosophy itself. I, uh, people were saying Kant is simply projecting back a lot of structures to do with the individual, private, volitional person um, that he has uh, inherited from his sort of uh, sense of the empirical self and just projected them where they totally don't belong into this transcendental realm. And so the what the true nature of the transcendental subject becomes this massively problematic, engaging question. Um, and, um, you know, you can go in all directions from sort of Heideggerian Dasein to the machine income conscious. All of these kind of formations are attempts to say what is really the, the puppet master behind the, the puppetry of the empirical self or the self subjected to heteronymous 
uh, impulses. But yes, before I'll just say one, I'll just read a little tie, a line of Kant, um, which I think is very helpful to this. Um, he says in the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, a person is a subject whose actions can be imputed to him, subject to no other laws than those he gives to himself, either alone or at least along with others. So this is a sort of declaration of the principle of autonomy as something that is actually a defining characteristic of the transcendental subject, which is also the moral or practical subject. Um, but if in philosophy we kind of absolutely have to start exploring abysses if we're going to go into this area, in the era of electronic media, I think this very strange and interesting thing happens that provides a much, much more convenient and seductive um, avenue to these questions, which is rather than stepping back from our naive empirical subject to its conditions to try to get behind the apparent self to what lies behind the apparent self. Instead, we start to see the appearance of virtual selves, avatars of all kinds in games where people obviously have a, 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 a fictional character that is related to them as they are, at least by some kind of analogy, to the deep or transcendental subject. And so rather than this, the initial move being this backward step, to step back out of the cell, it's instead people step, without being asked, they, they, they are propelled or stumble into this world of this proliferation of virtual identities, avatars, um, internet personalities, which when seen with some subsequent reflection, begin to sort of narrativize this relation back behind the cell. Um, I think that there's a, a bunch of topics I should really try and run through quickly on this because because it, it's such an incredibly uh, um, traffic-dense zone. The, the thing that's stimulated a lot <coughs> sorry, that stimulated a lot of this on the classroom was talking about the question of um, online personalities as targets for uh, consumer marketing. So Laura prov provided a set of links about theirs to do with the way that your profile becomes this extremely valuable marketing asset uh, to be targeted by uh, companies that are in a position now at a certain point of obviously we're on the Moore's law Moore's curve and at a certain point integrating all the information required to make that um, online personality a productive target for marketing activities is crossed and you then get this huge wave of activity that I think is quite recent it's really only sort of fully taken off in the last um, couple of years so there's that whole side of it and these questions about privacy that arrive, arise very strongly in that. And the fact that, as I say, people have stumbled into these identities. When people 
um, set up their Facebook accounts and set up their various avatars for their social media activities, they're not deliberately playing some experiment with identity. They're simply doing something that in the social milieu that we exist in now seems eminently sensible and straightforward and initially unproblematic. And only subsequently do people begin to think, hang on, what is this puppet that that ties together so many of my characteristics and tells people so much about me and allows people to extract value in certain um, ways from the kind of consistencies of behavior and, and particularly from the point of view we've just been talking commercial behavior that this that this avatar has been engaged in so there's that whole commercial side and there's obviously also a massively important police and security side to this question you know I absolutely adore this uh, this term that is used by various security services where they talk about a person of interest which again is actually a virtual persona it might be sort of referring to something beyond that but it's really a bundle it's a nexus of various kinds of communicative and political activities that can all be bundled together into some coherent um, virtual personality who then can be subjected to some kind of systematic surveillance and put on all kinds of relevant databases and all of these kind of things um, so it's it's a very closely related issue at a sufficiently abstract conceptual level but obviously a very different issue concretely about whether people are concerned about the profile that is taking place for them on the NSA database or whether they're concerned with the way that Google is bundling and commercializing their um, internet presence or something. But the point that I really want to sort of repeat because I think it's the crucial thing is that these virtual personalities are strictly analogous to empirical egos. That's to say they're formatted by a particular media system and act as the puppet of something that in that case we feel comfortable that we understand. We think, oh, that's our avatar, that's our particular uh, um, virtual personality for this particular system. Um, but the relation is extremely similar in principle um, and actually has the potential to open up a question about what in real life identities are using the actual leveraging tools that transcendental philosophy has provided us with. Um, finally, I think in this initial initial thing is just to then obviously tie it into Bitcoin in particular with this uh, the section 10 of the Bitcoin paper which contains it, the, the discussion is interesting but I think I find it a little bit elusive actually a little bit evasive I, was, I should say that it's most clearly what he's talking about is most clearly shown by a little diagram that is contained in, in the middle of this section where he's contrasting the Bitcoin model with what he calls the traditional privacy model. And the distinction is extremely straightforward in the sense that there's a simple thing that happens um, that he thinks totally transforms the structure of this. 
And he does it as two flowcharts, where on the traditional privacy model, there's identities that then goes to transactions, which is then shared with some tra um, trusted third party who acts to credentialize your identity to ensure it or guarantee it, and then passes through to the counterparty of the transaction, who then is confident they know who you are and that someone in authority knows who you are so they can trust you. And that the break then happens with the public in that the whole series of exchanges is kept private in this sense. It's not a it's not a totally individuated personal privacy because it's been shared with particular people. But you have a relation, for instance, you engage in a conventional bank transaction, you want to pass money to some particular person, you know about it, the person receiving the money knows about it, the bank knows about it, and of course government and tax authorities know about it, but the public does not know about it. That's where the break happens. It's not a public it's not on a public leisure ledger. It's not a public transaction. So the break takes place where you have um privacy on one side, the public on the other side. Um and that's the way everyone has been used to engaging in these kind of um processes. The new model has transactions passing directly across the public domain on this public ledger. Everyone knows what transactions are taking place. There's no secrecy there at all. The wall that was previously built to maintain privacy is gone now, just simply obliterated. And you have this public sphere um, in the form of the blockchain where everyone can see exactly what is happening. So in order for privacy to be maintained, that previous boundary has to be shifted. And it's shifted to, the, to, to a distinction between identity and transactions. So the distinction is now drawn actually in a way that we should be ready for from this question of transcendental philosophy. It's drawn within the subject between the transcendental and empirical aspects of the self. That's to say, the noumenal self, the in real life self, the identity that you have outside the system, unformatted, not at all subjected to these structures of representation, mm -hmm. is now beyond the boundary of um, pu publicity. And the avatar, the wallet, the account, the Bitcoin um, agent is completely exposed. And so it's between these two sides of identity that the, any possibility of privacy now um, has to exist within. These, so this boundary now that takes place between you and your account, between you and your puppet within the Bitcoin system, has now become absolutely critical. It's a kind of gulf of absolute importance to understanding how this question of identity um, is going to proceed. And obviously it's for that reason hugely invested in all kinds of ways. You know, um, there's everyone's privacy concerns about Bitcoin 
people being tracked down, of the things coming up around the Silk Road and these various sting operations and everything on that level, uh, is obviously totally about this difference. Because if anyone else can actually synthesize those two sides of, of, the, of the self now, then there's no privacy at all. Everything is completely exposed. Um, similarly, the, when all the questions about scams and frauds and all of the, the Mt. Gox issue and all of this whole side about security and Bitcoin is also totally tied up around this, around this gulf because you have people who are handling your online identity and they are what they people say talk about the on and off ramps into Bitcoin and is that that's an extremely interesting language because it's easy to, to simply the system itself is so neat that you can just simply spend your time completely intellectually inside the Bitcoin system but of course it only works as a commercial system because it's synthesized with a larger uh, socio-economic system and that that synthesis has to involve off-ramps and on-ramps. You have to be able to convert stuff into bitcoins and out of bitcoins and that has up to this stage involved these exchanges and because those exchanges are precisely in this problematic boundary zone, you know, they're at the edge of the system where it, it uh, mediating between this completely anonymous um, or we should be more cautious, let's say pseudonymous Bitcoin identity and your real social identity, the person who has a, a, a bank account full of dollar bills and wants to convert them into Bitcoin, it's this zone of particular enormous uh, vulnerability in the system. So all of the sort of very um, standard discussions about how safe is Bitcoin, do people trust Bitcoin as a whole, are also focused on this particular gulf and, and how it works and how secure it is and the kind of things that happen when it's being negotiated or mediated by various institutions or agents. Oh yeah, there's one more, more thing I'd just like to say about this, which is another, actually this is also fast, um, which is Ryan's incredibly fascinating um, link that he provided, which itself then explodes into 11 more links about decentralized applications. Um, and this is this whole question about DAOs or DACs, digital autonomous entities of various kinds which connects up with a much more uh, traditional and slow-moving issue that's also been highly contra uh, controversial about corporate personality. Um, because one of the things that happens when you draw this boundary between the, um, the transactional self within the system and the real self outside the system um, and I think real is extremely useful word to not let slip by too fast because it is very amphibious in the sense. As we've seen, real in the in the strong transcendental self means something incredibly opaque and obscure that requires monstrous efforts of sort of philosophical 
exploration to, to get any kind of access in. But it also, in this sense, means something that is misleadingly trivial. You know, like everyone knows who they really are. It's only when you go onto these systems or play a certain game that there becomes some question about your identity. And I think that those two aspects of the real seem as if they're simply different things that are kind of by some historical accident being designated by the same word. But I think they're not different things. I think that the way this is all working out is showing that they have a really deep conceptual relation to them. Because in both case, cases, the real is that thing that is outside the system of formatting that where that is in question in the particular in the particular case, um, and so once you draw the line here, as we've said before, the real self, the real person outside the system, could be anything. Again, it's a kind of echo, a weird echo of this transcendental problematic. You know, the virtual identity is formatted. It has to have certain personality uh, characteristics and, and yeah, personality. It has to, it has to be able to engage in contracts. It has to behave as a kind of at least quasi-rational, game-playing person. It has to be able to kind of sign, uh, make agreements, stick to them, ha have some continuous um, commitment to those uh, agreements across time. Um, all kind of features that are. Um, again, very conventional ones, traditionally. Um, but once you cross the line back out of that, you lose all sense of that. It's, you no longer know. You're passing out of the formatting system. You don't know at all what applies any longer to what this real identity is. The virtual identity we know about by definition, we know about transcendentally, transcendentally in this case being the rules of the system. But the, the real identity, no, it's outside, we don't know what it is. And part of that is to do with um, individuality and collectivity, which is obviously at stake in this notion of corporate identity. It's, um, it goes beyond the question of individuality and, and um, collectivity because it is also on another access to do with what is natural and human and various kinds of intelligent agents that might be completely synthetic. Um, we, don't, we don't know about that. But the point is because this real identity can be anything, all that matters is that when represented within the system, it can maintain a consistent identity. And so a corporation, the Coca-Cola company, can, can have a Bitcoin wallet and behave as a person just the same as some particular individual can behave. You know, what previously was a, was a contested, complex legal and political question about whether corporations are, are personal individuals, now is something that's absolutely just baked into the cake of the system. That, you know, anything that can run a Bitcoin account can run a Bitcoin account. And it's no longer possible to even think of setting criteria for that that are not imminent to or intrinsic to the actual system itself, to the formatting system of that account. 
And so I won't I won't spin this out much longer. But just to say, obviously, this question of of digital autonomous organizations and digital autonomous companies slots perfectly into this. You know, if you can if you can have some kind of software system that is competent to run a Bitcoin account, then it is a person within the terms of that system. There's no there's no superior tribunal with access to the real that can say, oh no, that thing doesn't count because I can tell that that account is not the same as this other account which belongs to some particular conventionally human person. All you know is that you have an account with a number on it, it's behaving in a certain way, it's engaging in a set of transactions. Uh, you, Bitcoin pretty much ensures that those transactions are going to be okay in the sense it can't cheat you in any, in any standard way. Um, and so, uh, so w by moving this line, this break or split into the self, into the distinction between the two sides, the transcendental and empirical side of identity, automatically any effective cryptocurrency system is going to open this zone that this, um, this area most associated with Ethereum, but it's part of a much wider possibility of these completely synthetic agencies is now introduced. Um, so I think I should pause because I've been rabbiting on and see what people want to do with any of this kind of stuff. Um, if I'm not sure where exactly this leads into a question or a topic exactly, but um, so you mostly focused on issues of a one-to-one -one correspondence between the sort of account holder who does all of these transactions and the real self, whatever the real self happens to be outside of it. But I mean, right. Nakamoto says, and this is pretty straightforward, as an additional firewall, a new key pair, which we can pretty much sub for identity here in this context, should be used for each transaction to keep them from being... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so in fact, we're trying to, I mean, you know, for maximum security in the sense of anonymity or privacy, yeah. we're trying to split yeah. into, you know, a different avatar for every transaction. So it kind of sure. works in the opposite direction from the loop that Kant is trying to impose where you're consolidating the empirical self's behavior into an ever more singular and autonomous um, agent that you know, corresponds with the, Numen with the Numenon's autonomy, which is to some extent how I well, read Kant, I guess. And then at the same okay. time, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, you go, you go, yeah, sorry. <clears throat> oh yeah, just the other um, component of that sort of issue of the real that I was going to point out here was that the one time when you really have to break Nakamoto's suggestion here is with these exchanges that exchange for things outside the Bitcoin system. Because if you want to exchange a bunch of Bitcoins for dollars or a bunch of dollars for Bitcoins, then since you've got this sort of Bitcoin sent by Bitcoin sent sort of multi-input uh, transaction system is what mediates that, um, that links a lot of your Bitcoin assets together, and at least at least you know that one time establishes you as an entity that is linked right. to all of those coins. And so it's kind of it's just interesting to me that singularity of the pseudonym would be forced in transactions outside the system, and at the same time that fragmenting that pseudo would be the means of ensuring the security of the real self. Right. Yeah. I think the first part of that 
I think it, it falls naturally into two parts. And, and the first part, I think, is possible to address much more confidently than the second. Not that it ends up somewhere easy, but it ends up somewhere or it goes through somewhere very familiar in the sense that these issues about the individuality, fragmentation, uh, unity of the self are the traditional ways that this Kantian problem has been um, developed. Um, and the, the person that I think uh, is like really helpful here because he's so straightforward and, and clean in the way he thinks about this is Schopenhauer, who wrote the best short book on Kant I think that's ever been written. And his fundamental uh, objection to Kant is to say, look, the very notion of individuality is part of the formatting. So when you tell me, to use your terms, that you've got a one-to-one -one correspondence between an empirical ego and a transcendental moral self standing outside of the theater, but still an individual of some kind, a real individual, he says you've got no basis for that at all. You know, the very notion of individuality is part of the theatrical performance. And for him, he then goes into this undifferentiated cosmic will that is the outside of the um, of the empirical self. Now, obviously, this in a fascinating way, this little drama is totally then rehearsed by what you've just said, where you have all of these different uh, Bitcoin accounts to try and maintain your security, but there's this one integral real being on the outside of the system, you know, so that someone watching the pu public ledger and seeing all these myriad of little accounts doing their things is seeing a, a bunch of what look to be differentiated individual accounts, but actually when you uh, take the step back into the real, you, s you, you see that actually there's this integrative process there and there's one real being that just has this multiplicity of avatars and it's obviously the same thing that happens in all kinds of formats I mean I know some nutters who seriously have like 12 Twitter accounts you know and <laughs> play all kinds of games about which of these are the same person and which aren't and all of this kind of thing or if you're someone who's really into online games or something like that and you you're playing a whole bunch of different characters maybe in the same or different games you know there's a natural tendency as you cross from as you cross this line from the real into the apparent side of the self to undergo fragmentation and you know while it is possible for the reverse to occur it's more difficult and requires much more complicated procedures to, to do that um, so I mean on the second side of what you're saying I think it's it's a more difficult thing uh, to say something quick about for sure um, um, I, I might just kind of I might just hold fire on that and see whether um, okay. it, I, I was uh, thinking really trying to get a grip on the transcendental empirical distinction with regard to, to Bitcoin and um, and the way you're 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 making a distinction and I'm tr I'm thinking as you're speaking Nick are you 
I, I get the impression that you're not trying to collapse the distinction um, in these completely synthetic agencies as you describe them, uh, but you think, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there remains a distinction. The question is how the distinction works itself out with regard um, to digitality and in particular cryptocurrencies. And I understand you to be saying that the Bitcoin uh, self, so to speak, the self that's in the, the, the public ledger uh, yeah. is the empirical ego, but then the more complicated uh, assessment is what then is the transcendental um, self. And in this yeah. case, I take you to be saying that it is, it's outside of that. It's when you step back and you're in the real, but that's, is that you and I? then and everybody well, else? I think that this is, you know, I'd really like to hold that open as a problem because it's, mm -hmm. to me, what's fascinating about this is that in the philosophical tradition it is an absolute extraordinary problem, obviously, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, this thing about how can you even think at all about what a transcendental self would be mm -hmm. has been something that the greatest geniuses in history have just <laughs> burst their blood vessels on, you know, and um, and gone to these extraordinary, just mad excesses of thought, really, in trying to do that. Um, and yet, as you say, in this example, it seems completely unproblematic. You know, you seem that you're just returning home. When, when you return to the real, you're just coming back to common sense, coming back to something that's already understood, and if anything... The, the difficult side of this of the rift is on the empirical side now, where you know these weird things happen with the avatars, and it's new, and we don't quite know how it's all working out. And so there seems to be this kind of reversal of difficulty happening there. But I think that bringing in one more, just to kind of in a way stir the broth even more by bringing what seems to me one more extremely pertinent. Uh, example of the way this works um, is is the simulation argument. You know, I don't know whether everyone's familiar with this. It's really worth looking. I'll put up a link for, for uh, the most uh, well-known version of it. It was it comes from Hans Morafek in the 1980s, but um, the most famous version is the one done by Nick Bostrom, um, and it's obviously publicized or uh, promoted as this basic question, are we living in a computer simulation? Um, and it, it actually, I think, is structurally absolutely indistinguishable from the issues we're, we're dealing with because it has exactly the same move, that it's the transcendental philosophical problematic, but weirdly altered by the fact that rather than this retrojective movement of trying to pull back out of the empirical self <laughs> into the unknown dimension of the, of the real of the real self the, the, the self in itself so to speak instead you you do this forward move first of all totally dependent upon the cultural climate of electronic media um, and say and the whole argument starts if certain limited conditions are to are maintained, then it will definitely be the case that in the future our species will produce 
historical simulations of arbitrary accuracy. You know, so it tracks what he's trying to do with computing power, to do with the kind of interests that are already exhibited in 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 doing uh, simulations of social and historical systems in the greatest possible detail, games, all of these kind of things, and to say, you know, either either our species is is annihilated, or some massive roadblock happens in terms of simulation technologies, or by some act of self-abnegation, it is decided not to have these simulations take place. And all of these different, I mean, I don't know how you would weight the probabilities of these various things, but it probably looks as if species extinction is the most probable of the three, and that all, all of them can be given a relatively low probability. So in that case, he says, it will definitely be the case that there will be beings existing within computer simulations of extraordinary human scale complexity whose entire function is to participate in a simulation, i.e. in an artificial reality, and therefore believe in that artificial reality, behave as agents in that artificial reality, etc., 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 and track those processes forward to the final stage of this argument is to say, if that is true, and you find yourself in a world, you find yourself as an empirical ego in some credible world, you are overwhelmingly likely to actually be inside a computer simulation because of all those kinds of beings, almost all of them are in computer simulations, and only some vanishingly insignificant proportion actually are, and we come back to this thing, you know, the real the real beings. Um, so I, I introduced that not only to just widen the, the scope of this, but because I think it directly ties up with your question here, which is that, so it starts off saying, look, imagine us creating, in a, in a future, our society creating these simulations and having these artificial beings, and they get confused about who they are. They think they're real inverted commas, but actually they're just existing inside a computer simulation. And then it obviously does this then recoil move to say, well, by all the probabilistic logic of this argument, we ourselves must be those beings. And then in turn, so we have been simulated by some real beings outside our system. Now, originally, those real beings outside the simulation are us, aren't they? There are, you know, we're thinking of ourselves, selves simulating, simulating stuff in the future. But now, at this stage in the argument, when we see, well, are we in a simulation? Well, what are the real? What are the real beings now? I mean, are they like just like us, but they just happen instead to be real rather than computer simulations? Or is it that once again we've drawn this gulf now between everything we know as reality and that which is be behind reality and, and running that reality and formatting that reality? Have we really got back to this deep transcendental question about what is a real self or a real agent? What are the actual, what is the population of the outside? Which we can, we've lost access to except by various complicated forms of analogy.
I mean, sorry, that might seem a bit weird as a, as a response no, not, to what you No, not at all. No, I, it's totally clear to me. It just um, deepens sort of, you know, my thoughts and reflections on the issue as not, as we need to do as much as we can because, as you said, it's incredibly complicated. Um, I, of course, Kant 101 um, is the notion that any experience, uh, experiencing being um, is... Um, already uh, their experience is of course conditioned by the, the transcendental realm and that right. that's, it, it, the transcendental amounts partially to the conditions of our possible experience so yeah, I just want to, I'm just saying that to keep that in my mind for myself because um, it doesn't matter how far we go back um, we could be um, sort of virtual world number 110 and there's yeah keep taking a step back but as long as it goes back to an experiencing being we're not at the real so for me there's no chance uh, that that we are in that that uh, that we are the noumena so to speak even well, though well when you say we i mean this is exactly where on the crux of the issue when you say we are I mean, yes, if by if you're saying that which we identify empirically as ourselves cannot mm -hmm. be the conditioning being, absolutely, 100%. Mm -hmm. But of course, already for Kant, and then more strangely for all his successors, that conditioning being is really what we are. Um, you know, like what that it's only the empirical ego is only our apparent self. It's only our it's only our stage presence. And the real you is the conditioning being that is directing the performance. Um, and obviously Kant thinks we know quite a lot about that because he's being traditional about it. And, and the analogy is very strong between the sort of thing that is doing the performance and the sort of thing that is directing the performance. It's an individuated agent of a kind that we're sort of relatively confident we understand but in many of the paths that people take off this problem the what the direct what is the director becomes um, extremely arcane question mm -hmm. I mean, if uh, I don't want to shut down this side of it because it's obviously the side of it that I find most totally gripping. But I mean, we can definitely move this in a more empirical direction to talk about um, some of these very practical issues about identity and privacy and protection of identity and the way that um, this new format for identity is actually going to tie up with what, what has looked like a very different discussion about um, online privacy and online identity. Um, and obviously, um, as I say, it seems to me there's two huge cultural formations in that, on that other side already, which is, which is tied up with the whole 
uh, security surveillance side of it and is tied up with this to, um, corporate marketing side of it and both of those have engendered a massive amount of discussion and, and concern in various ways. Um, the advertisers, in, I mean, and this is true of the security complex as well on sort of a different scale of loops, but um, in the case of the advertisers in particular, the way in which gathering that data about you then is immediately indistinguishable or part of targeting stuff at you that's supposed to modify your behavior and often, you know, succeeds in doing so even for those of us who, you know, are kind of in principle resistant to buying what ads tell us to buy and so forth. You know, I mean, with sufficiently uh, with sufficiently good targeting in some areas, you're like, oh, shit. I mean, yeah, it's actually kind of a distinct, I'm rambling here, but it's kind of a distinct yeah. feeling when after being used to seeing a succession of ads that have, you know, no interest to you, suddenly Facebook hits it one day yeah. and you get three that are just like, you know, that's kind of creepy, actually, that it managed to find those. And so to the extent that that's sort of, there's another, again, you know, side to the loop that's modifying your behavior, it seems as yeah. if that is fundamentally different from the model of the transcendental versus empirical ego that, at least that Kant brings up, if not necessarily all of his successors. Um, so, I mean... It seems as if the security and the advertising are just are part of this area where, um, I don't know. I guess where the issue where the issue of self is different from the sort of absolute abstract divide between a real self and an empirical self that the philosophy is concerned with, and becomes like a cybernetic and material issue where what you're talking about is, as you said, a, a nexus or bundle of communications that is constituting selves on both sides: a virtual self and the quote-unquote psychological self, a gentle self whatever that's puppet mastering it or allegedly yeah. puppet mastering it yeah no i think there's well there's there's a there's a really deep political and philosophical side to to this and there's a there's a side that i think is immediately fascinating to talk to which uh, i've got to pick up on because i think this this thing about targeted advertising is hugely and fascinatingly paradoxical i mean it's right that you say it's meant to modify your behavior, if only in the sense that it's meant to get you to buy something that you wouldn't otherwise buy. I mean, I think everyone would have to accept that's the minimum of why, that's the minimum motivation for any kind of advertising activity. If it's not going well, to change that behavior. Well, participation. You know, I mean, sites that don't necessarily charge you anything to sign up, but it's still advertised because they get right. something out of it. To catch you somehow, yeah. Yeah, but but if you look, like you say, for instance, these Amazon um, recommendations, I mean, there's something extraordinarily interesting about the fact that it has got so inside your head that it's hard not to see it as a service. You know, when Amazon knows you so well that the books it suggests that you might be interested in are all books that you go, wow, that looks really interesting. You know, <laughs> how did it know? How did it know I, I would want that? I mean, you know, it, it's, it's easy to be sort of glib in one's stance of critique about this thing. And I'm not saying that those critiques are not interesting at all. But I think it's easy to, to be distracted from the fact that 
they really are things that are seductive. Right. And you know, and, and they, 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 in most cases, when done well, this kind of targeted advertising, precisely because it is targeted, seems to be non-abusive to the people on the receiving end of it. It seems it is very easy for that kind of advertising to really seem as if it is doing something for you, helping you to know even better than you do yourself what it is you really are interested in. Um, and I would be very surprised if overall, I mean I think that this is a, it's going to be a big, big problem for formations of left critique about this advertising thing is that it is winning a kind of a tacit popular ideological war by simply being so much more appealing to people. When you're bombarded by advertising of stuff you're not interested in, you know, that is trying to make you interested by some hard sell tactic, it's very easy for someone to come along and say to you, this is, you're being abused, you know, this is annoying you, what, what's happening here, you're against it. It's not a big problem. But when advertising is targeted so well that you really are seeing these things and you're saying, hey, that product is looks great. I'm so pleased that I've been told about it. Then there's not the same latch for this kind of sense of political alienation or, um, you know, well, affront. Except to the extent, except from maybe a libidinal economics perspective, where what's just happened is that you've succumbed to a more surgical or, you know, more powerful libidinal attack or, you know, attack on your cognitive yeah. security. And so yeah. you become more dependent upon this system. And so, you know, yeah, you yeah, yeah. from a certain perspective, which, I mean, there has to be damages in order for that to be politically relevant. And so you have to kind of imagine that there's some attentional faculty or deep attention faculty or, you know, interest in the things that interest you that's being depleted or flattened out right. by this kind of thing. You know, Stiegler argues that. And I think there's got to be some truth to that. I mean, just like, you know, interactions with a smartphone over a long period of time will kind of show you that there is, there's some kind of, something is being done to your attentional faculties. It's still not entirely sure what, but, or whether yeah. it's irremediable, but, I don't know, there's still some politics there, I think. Okay, so, so, I'm, something, I'm, yeah. so something's done to your, like, something's done to something, right? I mean, I mean, tests on monkeys showed that they did this test, I don't know how many guys, how many of you have read about it, right? They, they did this test a couple years ago. Actually, I was reading about it in 2012, so it must be uh, more than a couple of years ago, right? So basically, what they did was they changed, basically they, they, they forced the monkey to learn how to, how to break through a window with a hammer to get to the banana, right? Instead of just grabbing the banana. And then they noticed immediately rewiring of neural systems and the shape of brain cells. Within a month or two of using the hammer, literally the memory of holding the hammer and smashing into the glass had started to transform the monkey's brain. God, Heidegger and Stiegler would love that. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Yeah. But it, but it also would be a bit surprising well, if that wasn't time, true. Right? I mean, sorry, sorry, Nick. What were you saying? Well, I was just going to say, but wouldn't it be surprising if that wasn't true? I mean, I, I'm assuming everyone thinks that the mind is run on the brain, and I mean, it, you know, there's if the monkey has learnt something, isn't that necessarily going to be that there will be a set of changes in the brain that, with sufficient resolution, we can detect? Well, yeah, but those are equivalent. I mean, changes that keep perpetuating more changes into the larger system. I mean, there's a big difference between changing the potentiation patterns of synapses to record that one memory. I've used, like, a muscle memory. I've used the hammer before, and a cascade of changes that's like, I used a tool to get to the thing that I want. Right. And, you know, it involved gestures and this heavy object, and that was related to breaking a barrier. I mean, I assume that's what you're talking about, Mo, is that there was a cascade of changes. Yes, no, but but not only that, but but also what Nick was saying, which is like, which is like, which is like, we're we're basically we're 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 empirically learning things that we could intuitively guess that they were true, right? It's like okay, so yeah, so our tools transform our brain. Now, if you get that monkey to not use that tool for a long period, I bet those changes will like disappear, and then he'll move into another sort of like state which is sort of like the old one plus the traces of the former new one and now the new one right so it's like I don't know it's like a like every 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 physical or or virtual tool we use somehow transforms our sense of who we are and are the way are, are, or like change uh, or upsets the balance of our attentional resources right or like the way we use them yeah for sure. How do you determine in that in that particular example though what what the authentic reflexes are? I mean, everything is conditioned to some degree, even the original uh, authentic desires that are then being manipulated by advertising or whatever experiment that you're caught up in. Yeah, totally. I mean, how do you trace I, that back to some kind of? No, but I, but I'm I'm, I'm, original I'm almost saying the same thing, but in 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 from the other from the other side, right? So so it appears like. Me and Amy are disagreeing, but I completely I'm trying to say big deal. Let's move on from this, right? Because there's no sort of like point of origin or you know what I mean? There's no sort of like way of authenticating something prior to these tools. Yeah. Eventually yeah. desires that crazy. Amazon puts into your Yeah. I missed the last I missed the last thing you said. Sorry, I missed that last thing that you said there, Amy. What, what, what was that final statement? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think I'm lagging. Um, I don't remember what I said. My brain's. Uh, I don't think you're lagging. I can hear you perfectly. Okay. Um, um, yeah, I don't. I'm sorry, uh, Mo. You said uh, that uh, only. Um, uh, when uh, monkey used uh, hammer, uh, it changed uh, her brain, right? Yes. Uh, but uh, uh, it's uh, I mean it is no nothing new in, in it. If we uh, standing on the position of uh, neurosciences, uh, <laughs> any our Action 
uh, will change our brain. Absolutely any action, any sort, and uh, anything. If uh, because uh, all our thoughts, all our actions is a chemical reactions and uh, a, a, a Mm, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, uh, it's chemical reactions, and if uh, it's chemical reactions, any reaction will change your brain. It will change the structure of the brain. Maybe it is uh, not very radical change, but it is change. No, for sure. But I think uh, I think this is I. As much as it's significant, it's not significant. Uh, how uh, how are you going to um, uh, to uh, to uh, to split significant and not significant change? Well, significant is in a sense significant because because it shows that you know there's nothing concrete about about the biology because this is not just like some like the changes that we're talking about in that in that study wasn't just like some fluid chemical changes but actual changes to brain cells and to neurons right like changes that are lasting changes that are in the way the cells are now the, the shape of the cells right but at the same time I mean so it's significant because because we thought you you think of like you think of biological entities are something fixed and like you know like based on heredity right but you but then but then empirical data tells you that no actually actually like certain certain actions will transform the biology maybe not enough like you said to leave a lasting lasting impact on the next generation but for this for this particular biological unit the changes are sort of like significant enough to show on our radar right so so that is significant because it in to that extent but if you come from a but if you come from a school of thought that already you kind of like you kind of like speculate that everything's in flux and changing it just kind of become like non significant mm. <laughs> i'm uh, you never know what is significant uh, i mean uh, talking about uh, Okay, it's, uh, I uh, it's uh, some of kind of uh, jumped out of the team team, but uh, if uh, talking about uh, physics, uh, if we uh, there are uh, fluctuations, and uh, you never uh, know what fluctuation uh, can uh, change the system, and uh, what fluctuation. Uh, will uh, have no real effect on the system. Uh, well, the thing is, the thing is, the only thing that kind of becomes kind of interesting here, in case of the humans, as I mean, I mean, what I'm saying is nothing important. I'm just wasting time, right? But I just <laughs> like, like seriously, uh, what becomes significant is the fact that is the fact that when when you become aware of the changes that have happened in the way you use. Well, no, you still there? Or am I interrupting you, or you just disappeared? Okay, I think he's frozen out. Yeah. 
Okay, well, I was just going to say that, um, and this is sort of, this absorbs the becoming aware of to a certain extent, but more it's, it's saying that um, the fact that you can't know it in advance doesn't mean there isn't a distinction between the significant and the non-significant. It's that it appears after the fact, and where it's sort of like, um, you know, Deleuze's account of habitus, where it triggers a self-organizing change in the system that uh, it is a change to. So, you know, you have the, like, where the cyclone can be understood as the self-organization that makes the, you know, butterflies flap of its wings, the initial small perturbation, um, have been significant. So the perturbation isn't significant at the time in itself, but it will have been to the extent that it triggers a self-organizing behavior. And so, I mean, we can view, like, awareness that, you know, my awareness that I have changed, whether it's an awareness that it's on account of this small chemical change or not, as a self-organizing self change, but it's not necessarily the only one either, whereas like before, you know, this small change of the addition of a memory of using a hammer can create a self-organizing change in the, four, you know, the neocortex's position towards technics or to technical gestures, um, or, you know, contact with an antigen causes a self-organizing reaction in the immune system. Um, you know, et cetera, so that small changes can get picked out later as significant by the way they affect the system's interact self-interaction. That's what I'd argue would be, you know, in this context at least, would be the threshold. Of so can you, guys, can you guys hear me now? Yeah. Yes. So yeah, so I guess I, guess I was trying to say, say the same thing when it froze, it froze, so I came and connected myself like literally to the network so I don't get, go through these kind of like up and downs, but... I think I was saying the same thing, right, Jake? Yeah, I, I think so. I was kind so of once, distracted by once, the once you become once you become aware of like traces of these like changes, it gets into a different mode. Because then you can kind of like think about it. I don't know, but yeah, D Daniel also is saying something on the sidebar that that maybe he wants to like articulate it himself or. I don't understand what he means by QCT, but... Question concerning technology. Technology. The later Heidegger text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, totally, man. I know, I know. Yeah, we're off on a sidebar a little bit. Yeah. 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 So, Nick, do you want to, like, do you want to continue? Well, I mean, there was a thread um, that came to a certain kind of um, point of criticality, I thought, with Jake's point about this um, this whole new advertising environment that we're in. Um, that I mean, it's slightly off our main beat, but it's one. But it's an issue that I think is extremely fascinating to do with this whole question about complicity. And you know, the the point. Jake was making as a kind of riposte, but this isn't something that I would want to have disagreed with initially. About um, there's still there's still a kind of politics, and there's still a, a position of critical negativity open in this. And the question that I want to raise is, well, what happens to that position? Because I think something really systematic happens to it. You know, it's like um. It, I, I'm not at all denying that it's there, but I think it undergoes this extraordinary mutation because of the fact that it's, it loses its ground 
in immediate, uh, any sort of immediate sense of abuse. And it's therefore driven up into a sort of meta level. It's like this whole technology, if you were sort of looking at it from, in a way, the very perverse per position of sort of quasi-academic political critique, is actually an engine of abstraction. Because it no longer is actually being fed by this ground level outrage, you know, as we're, as we're saying, people are getting this targeting advertising. It's changing their brains, as we've said. I mean, it's kind of totally invading them at this very intimate level to such an extent that it seems like them, you know. So Amazon, which I'm using that example only because I know it best, it really seems almost that it's like some kind of doppelganger that is so deeply inside your head that it's thinking certain things for you more authentically than you ever able to think them yourself and more knowledgeably, you know, and says you're the sort of person who likes this book even though you've never heard about it and you have to say you're right, you know, I wish I was the sort of person who already had known that that book had existed, thank you my second Amazon self for doing me better than I was doing myself. And when you've got people in that position, it's obviously deeply complicated to muster a kind of uh, momentum of political critique in traditional ways. I mean, you, you can't say, you know, I know you hate this and we're going to help you get rid of it because people are absolutely so entangled almost amorously with this thing that's being done to them that the notion that they're being subjected to something uh, abhorrent has to then be carefully produced by an extremely elaborate sort of meta discourse. Sorry, I don't know what happened then. Um, is, um, no, there's some... There's some uh, I'm just going to like mute... <laughs> Yeah, it's just a question of muting. I think I'm just going to mute Jake. Go ahead. Yes, no, I'm, I think I'm sort of done with that. It's just to say I, th I think that there's a strange systemic relationship between forms of you know, highly intellectualized political critique and some of these developments that are happening in particularly social media um, where you, you can't decompose it. They're working together as a system, however reluctantly, in that one undergoes a set of transformations irresistibly because of what is happening at the other at the other level. If level is not a good way of talking about it, I suspect. Can I add something to this? Um, yes, for sure. Okay, yeah, I totally agree with the fact that um, I mean, some of the critiques that do micro-targeting and, and everything get a bit, as you said, abstract, I think. But I think there is another level to the to data profiling and mining and quantifying, which is precisely the trading of data. I think that is the actually right. the disturbing. I don't. I mean, it's fine. It's Amazon. You know, it's recommending me books that I actually may be interested in reading. Right. But the fact is that when Amazon sells my data to banks, financial institutions, whatever, to decide what is my credit, uh, whatever rate, right. and I don't know. I think. So are you? Are you? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Finish. Finish what you're saying. 
No, 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 I was just saying, yeah, I think that is the, uh, the very uh, right. disturbing element. No, of no, that's critically uh, important, definitely, critically important. And it's, it's obviously, you get back to this split between these, these two levels of the South. There's, you know, the, uh, there's the IRL identity, and then there's this burgeoning, developing, rapidly evolving virtual persona that finds itself involved in these commercial processes that are opaque. I mean, there's commercial processes it's engaged in itself, but then, like you say, there are these commercial processes that it only learns about indirectly because someone tells them that, did you know that there was a trade in all of this bundled personal, well, personal data taking place? Um, and uh, yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating, fascinating issue for sure. It still seems to me, though, that, um, and I'm not, I'm not being critical in saying this. When I talk about this, this pressure towards a certain type of abstraction, I don't mean that to say dismissively at all. I, I find all drives towards abstraction extremely interesting. I'm simply saying that in order to even make the, the point that you've made, which I agree is extremely crucial, um, you still, you're, you are already still taken up to a certain higher level of abstraction because you're dealing with things that are happening to people's virtual persona. You know, so you're already assuming that they are taking a kind of interest, a moral political interest in this new level of um, of empirical of the empirical self or 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 formatted identity. That's a completely new thing. I mean, no one had these things. You know, obviously on a philosophical level, everyone's always had an empirical ego, but no one had virtual persona only a few decades ago. Um, and you don't even have to go back that far before they were so crude and deliberate and experimental that there was no comparison. So this is something extremely recent that's happened to people where you now have to say you now have these additional selves that have become critical elements of commercial and political reality and you have to start taking it seriously. Um, and this is a challenge, I think, rather than in a conventional environment where things are happening to people's real lives and you just say, look what's happening to you or you hate being on that production line or these kind of things. Now you really have to say, you have to switch levels in order to start addressing this process. Yeah. Well, and I mean, with regards to what Laura specifically said, or, you know, I mean, the specific thing that she found disturbing, which was, you know, trading into financial institutions that determine your credit, and then sort of an equivalent would be like, you know, insurers and your healthcare premium, that sort of thing. I mean, it's not that much older, but that problematic predates, you know, virtual, like literally virtual selves being the issue. So you've got, you know, like you've still got a, you've got an actuarial self. Or, or whatever right. it is that's yeah you, you smoke or whatever and does that information get communicated to a healthcare you know like yeah. which parts of your financial life get communicated to a bank and so it's that interaction with institutions that we already understand this problematic with regard to that kind of concretely problematizes this relatively abstract problem yeah so itself Jake so like your 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 credit score was already a virtual self. Right, I mean, or at least, yeah, to some extent, it's at least comparable. 
because I you mean, missed your payment on your electricity bill, and then somehow it would update itself. And yeah, I mean, this is retrospective, but it's all data. Like, oh, shit, somebody, people will find out about it, right? And then there's also, there was always, always, there were, like, public records of people who sued you or, like, if you did stuff that would end up in public, like, ledgers, right? Like, say, if somebody, like, if you were accused of something, right? And, and these databases were not available digitally to people because just they were just, like, there were no Internet, right? But now a lot of them you can actually uh, search and find out about. Yeah, and to some extent, the least virtual of those, or the least analogous, would be that, you know, a background check. Like, you know, have you personally stolen from some other person personally, right. you know, showed up at court and gotten this charge, but, like, you know, your, your interaction with healthcare systems or usage of credit cards, it, not, it doesn't even almost need to be observed by any particular human or linked up in any really fundamental way with you. You can just have, you know like lived at this place briefly and a rent bill didn't get paid or you know, used a credit card and no one ever really, you know, took note of you using this credit card in the wrong way, but it percolates into your data footprint, into your financial data footprint. And that was true even before that was, you know, a, a, a network yeah. entity necessarily. But, 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 if we, but if we go back to this, to, to this section 10 of this Satoshi Nakamoto paper and this basic point he's making, about the switch of this of this gulf between between the private and the public from one that bundles ev all the participants and everybody involved in the transaction on one side and then breaks with the public and then on the other you've got the break happening between your real and virtual persona I mean, doesn't that impinge on what you're saying there? Like, all this prehistory, where it's to do with your credit scores, criminal records, actuarial factors, all of these kind of things, are all being synthesized on something very close to your, let me say, conventional real identity. You know what I mean? They're cross-media. Maybe yeah, some of them have involved computer systems or just on paper or bureaucracies, different media. Yes, they've all got their own formatting systems, but, there, but there's no coherent self being implied by that constellation of information other than you in the most conventional sense of that self-identification. Right. No, Whereas now, now we're crossing into this, I think, different, different zone where the nexus of constellation, the nexus of synthesis, is entirely within this new media system. And there is room, you know, like if we go back to Laura's question, which I, I think is, that, you know, try and bring these things together more. And let's just say you were really upset about, I'm changing it slightly or specifying it, just to say, make it more concrete, and say you're really upset about the way that the information that has accumulated on your Facebook ID is being treated by Facebook as a company and it's being re released to other people, sold to other people. Um, in some ways, you have a problem with the way that that constellation of information is now being manipulated or commercialized. Um, it would be possible to fall back on this same 
boundary that is drawn between your Bitcoin account and your IRL person to say, I need to make a much stronger and more secure gulf between that Facebook avatar and my real self. You know, that is the now the bulwark of resistance in this. It's to say it's gone, you know, the the uh, the Facebook identity is lost. I can't protect it. It's like completely all kinds of people are fishing what they want from it and using it in any way they want, and it's completely beyond protection. So the line of protection has to be drawn bet within the cell, between its virtual apparition and its real existence and it's the, the, the you know the problem has been that that gulf wasn't being taken seriously enough it was too new people didn't understand what they're doing they naively over identified with their avatars um, you know and so your Facebook page it never occurred to you that this was something that should be strategically performed because your avatar was going to be utterly vulnerable and any security you had had to happen between you and your avatar, not within the avatar itself. Nick, can I say something? Yes, of course. You know, this is something that I've been kind of interested in for many years because I actually have an interest in fashion. My mother was a fashion designer, and uh, I noticed this shift right around the same time as this whole uh, digital, like what you just identified in terms of like people's people's sort of naivety around the notion of like your virtual self and all that sort of like already played out in the way fashion was used say in the last like in the 20th century and culminating almost in the last decade of the 20th century right fashion was something that was a place where you you displayed your yourself your subjectivity your differences your uniqueness right whereas as we moved into 21st century more and more Fashion is becoming a kind of a conscious mask in order to market yourself or make yourself available to the world in the ways you want. And you, right. so what you wear no longer is about you displaying who you are to the world, but to sort of cleverly putting out a version of you for a particular sort of like uh, for a particular setting. So if you're going to like meet with lawyers you're gonna dress this way and if you're gonna like go hang out with your friends who are gonna smoke pot you're gonna like dress that way because you wanna appeal to these you know what I mean if you have a business meeting you know what I mean and the, the, these things are becoming like, people are becoming much more conscious of how they use this mask of fashion and I think, right. yes. and I think this is happening in, the, in, a, in, 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 in people's relationship with their uh, with their uh, with their avatars sure yeah, I think that's a very good point. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's a whole thing about that the self has an element of puppetry about it that would previously not be unfamiliar to philosophers, but in ordinary existence would seem like a kind of weird esoteric suggestion of little practical relevance that is being made utterly practical in the sense that if you if you maintain a, a entire naivety about the actual way you deploy these avatars like in fashion as you say or, or all of these different zones then you know you simply are not coping competently with the with the new environments that that we're operating in 
Nick, I had a quick question relating uh, to what you said about it, you know, say Coca-Cola being flattened to the level of a virtual identity or a Bitcoin self. Um, I think that mainlining is very interesting, but um, I guess my question is, couldn't Coca-Cola then do that same proliferation of avatars and... Uh, I don't know, is it, if Bitcoin is the only data that can distinguish these, or how many Bitcoins you have, distinguish these identities from one another, Yeah. how do they, uh, or couldn't these companies take advantage of this, and couldn't the like, underserved perhaps not be able to access it? Like, Couldn't there be a, a tipping point, so to speak, not to invoke Gladwell, but um, whereby Bitcoin took off and these companies jumped in and the uh, homogenous, the same virtual flat identity that we could have couldn't keep up? Or is there some way that the decentralization could keep all of this um, exchange uh, in check? If that's a uh, legit question. Yes, for sure it is. I mean, it's obviously a difficult one So, sorry, um, I've just getting sort of have domestic domestic notes being passed around where my children, which beds my children are sleeping. Um, um, think on it. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think this is crucial, and to me, it it goes to this point. Actually, we were talking about a bit last week about this. What's already involved in this peer to peer thing? You know, because I think it's it, there's no way it's possible to confidently speculate about the way this kind of things turn out. But I think we can definitely see that it has a pedigree with which we're very familiar, which is that these very traditional questions about what is involved in the notion of formal equality or peer-to-peer -peer relations is obviously taken to this omega point on Bitcoin. And any worries you might have previously had about, in the widest sense and most classical sense, liberal socioeconomic arrangements is just driven up to this absolutely hysterical uh, situation. Because it's, it's not only corporations. I mean, literally, you can, you can start slotting anything into this zone of the real South, anything you like. You know? So if you treat it as a game, that is at least partly competitive and even hostile, then you really don't know who you're playing this game against. I mean, all you have are these avatar characters that, as you say, might be fragments of some mega corporation, might be parts of some weird techno-intelligence system that you don't yet understand. I mean, you simply cannot know, because all you have is the promise of formal equality between nodes uh, with deliberately stripped of all substance. Um, so I think there's a huge future for uh, elaborate, techno-savvy, massively paranoid left critiques of the mm. new Bitcoin internet. I mean, I think that will be absolutely huge and fascinating thing to, to happen. I mean, um, you know, and I think that in your question, you'll sort of have some embryonic an embryonic growth of that um, visible. 
potentially. I mean, yeah. sorry, I won't, I won't babble on about this, but just to say, you know, obviously the reference that is just screaming out to be said is the situationist, you know, mm-hmm. and the whole, the whole thing about the spectacle um, as, as a kind of paranoia machine. Um, that it's the the thing behind the spectacle that you're not seeing and the spectacle is in control. I mean, now, you know, we're in an environment where all of that type of systematic political paranoia can just be cranked up to 11 without any difficulty whatsoever. Since it's all visible. That's why. That's why Guy Debord wrote, like, the, the text that would just keep keep on giving. It's like that's why that text is like never gonna go away in a certain type of mindsets, right? It's just that text just keep keeps giving giving the same thing, in like you know, and it's like it's crazy. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks. What about uh, fake uh, fake accounts, fake uh, uh, fake profiles? If uh, someone uh, will make a fake uh, profile of, of me, for example, or, or maybe profile of some celebrity. Is it uh, some kind of a uh, steal of identity, of part of identity, and or what is it? So. Yes. Okay, I mean, now this is something that we immediately have to partition off from Bitcoin, because it simply cannot happen in Bitcoin. But in all these other zones we've been talking about, for sure, and it, it, it seems to me there's two dimensions of this. One is to do with the relation that's crossing this rift, that someone is able to accumulate information about your real identity and can construct an avatar of that in some media system. And have they sort of sucked out and stolen your, vampirically stolen your identity and stuck it into cyberspace? Or there's this horizontal, more contagious model where you already have put a whole bunch of material into a virtual identity and that's being cloned or copied or in some way sucked out of your virtual personality and reproduced in some monstrous form or some double that is horrible to you. And I I can definitely see that, that both of those are almost certainly going to happen a lot, you know, in more and more horrific ways. So I think, yeah, for sure. Our name is Legion because we are many. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, this whole, as we know from the whole Bitcoin thing, that the the baseline of all digital systems is perfect facility at cloning. You know, it's why the double spending problem is the sort of starting point of the whole thing. And so all these problems to do with uh, doubling, replication, um, you know, which have always been a staple of horror identity as far back as you want to go, are now operationalized in an extremely smooth fashion. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of fascinating stuff about Bitcoin with this that, you know, I, again, I won't get too lost in this because it's something we'll, we'll come back to. It's totally fascinating. Is that, of course, it sort of starts with the double spending problem and it totally addresses that in this focused fashion because it knows that it's in this medium where copying, cloning is completely or effectively free. And, and with a certain self-satisfaction. I mean, I love it, so I'm not 
trying to be cruel in this, but with a certain self-satisfaction, it sort of says, we've solved the double spending problem, but that everything in this medium is open to those vulnerabilities. So, you know, people clone Bitcoin websites, they clone Bitcoin institutions, they clone Bitcoin exchanges, they clone the whole Bitcoin system into these various different cryptocurrencies. All the way down, whatever level, there is this massive process of duplication that I do think came as a bit of a surprise in the sense that everyone thought, well, what if you made, you know, the whole issue was programmed by the previous financial history where the whole thing was, what if you, if you duplicate this uh, currency unit? No one was thinking, well, what if you duplicate these, these entire institutions? And so someone who's trying to go to some part of what they think is the trusted Bitcoin infrastructure finds themselves on some scam website, you know, the, the Bitcoin institution or um, whatever it is that's just fractionally changed and is, at, and is uh, representing itself to you as being part of this, of this system designed to... Uh, eliminate the double spending problem and the duplicity and the doubling of the sign and is itself actually a doubling that has been totally produced in order to uh, scam you at this meta meta level so yeah I think there's no end to the to the uh, the level of appropriate paranoia is beyond anything that probably is humanly imaginable in this situation yeah, I mean, once you start, I was just thinking of, um, I think it's Mona Lisa Overdrive is the one where most explicitly, I mean, you have the um, these psych profiles mentioned that allow someone to, you know, buy the ability to predict someone's actions better than that person could so that you can come before right. them and you can see how they're going to react to a certain way of approaching them in advance. And it seems like that's kind of an essential threshold where this doppling of your of yourself or your data self, yourself into your data self, um, becomes just essentially problematic is when the doppled data self can literally come before the quote-unquote real self, you know, is a better predictor of, or, you know, ha has the power yeah. to determine the actions of the real self in advance. Yeah. To some extent. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, that's an aspect of this whole thing about um, all all these worries that people have about what might happen to their virtual avatar. Um, obviously, are actually indistinguishable from some kind of cloning. I mean, it's that the, if if someone can traffic your information, it's because everything that has been synthesized as you within a certain virtual format can simply be copied and circulated um, as something that can then be uh, poked apart in some software laboratory somewhere by a by an automatic an automatic system but then um, obviously then these DAOs which we haven't uh, I've got to make sure we schedule a nice big chunk and everyone gets prepared for that because they are just, I think everyone ultimately, that's the most interesting thing. And it really is with these things that the whole question of artificial intelligence has just crossed a line 
in automatically and immediately from being wild scientific speculation to being just part of our social environment. I mean, you know, as soon as you have the model of a DAO being seriously entertained and people working on it, you're basically already saying how are artificial intelligences going to fit into this particular social milieu. And I mean, of course, people can respond to that saying, oh, come on, you know, no one is going to get these things to work, as they do in many other parts of the AI debate. But I honestly think it's unlikely that people are saying that. You know, when people read the, the Vitalik Buterin material, are they really saying to themselves, there's no way you could get one of these things to operate? I mean, all it has to do to get started is just have a little knot of commercially consistent activity. It just has to earn itself enough bitcoins to cover its own running expenses. And obviously on Moore's law, those running expenses are heading towards zero and you know it can find anything, any service open on the net it can operate in um, in order to just get some tiny little trickle of those that they call the Bitcoin microfragment satoshis. You know, some tiny little trickle of satoshis and it's alive then. You know, and maybe it's just a bug. Um, but it's there. Buterin, who I adore because of the fact he's such a lunatic in this respect, is saying, look, we're going to make these things Turing complete, um, open-ended prospect for them to improve their, their own performance, um, and then we're going to release them and see what happens. You know, I mean, it's just canned cyber apocalypse. You know, there's no, uh, you couldn't do more to just totally let everything come howling out of Pandora's box than, than that. And it's like just happening. I mean, we're now there as the cusp that is, uh, is our contemporary reality. Nick, did you just say contemporary reality? Contemporary reality. Oh, yeah. I thought you couldn't combine it, it into the same word. No, but that would be nice. I'll have to go and piddle around with it on the word processor later. So I think uh, we've got like one significant topic spasm of, t of time left, if anyone has some inspiration in that respect. I, no, I don't know. Yeah. Sorry, just Sorry. a general comment um, that, and I started thinking about this um, the other day. Uh, Zizek has been in Los Angeles. I actually asked him um, what he thought about Bitcoin. Um, and he said he couldn't answer me seriously because he doesn't know that much about it, which I thought was right. in interesting. But um, that's I, so I, good. I wish you recorded him. Finally, he he, he one thing he's not going to blab about. I, he, it was strange. Yeah, he really couldn't. <laughs> yeah. He started. He said, "You know, I can't answer you seriously about this, but I will tell you about how this." I forgot what country he was referring to and what governments just started printing money and how this was a big problem right. and stuff. But um, 
I think it is recorded, uh, by the way, Mo, if you want to hear it sometime, I'll pass it to you. Um, but what I wanted to say was that um, I was thinking about the double spending problem, and during the, the past hour, there's been a, um, a going back and forth between literally the double spending problem with regards to currency, and then also the notion of identity, and there's kind of a doubling problem there, well, with this idea of having a fake identity, um, the one you present yeah. versus the one behind the scenes. And Zizek was talking about this idea that uh, that he thinks, you know, when we have these uh, these people who have these formal identities, that we shouldn't allow them to then then show their human side in order to gain favor in the political sphere. That we should just force them into the role, like the president should just always be the president, he should never show his human side. Right. But uh, I digress. My point is just yes, that it's, it's fascinating to me that, and maybe I'm going too far here, that the double spending problem and what I'll just call this double identity problem are collapsing in yeah. our questioning about Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I, I think that collapse is not just us doing it. I think that collapse mm. is massively happening, mm -hmm. for sure. I mean, what's really interesting, if you follow this through just on the cryptographic thread, there is an almost complete collapse of the distinction between what is a currency system and what is a system of identity. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just, you lose the sense of crossing from one to the other almost automatically because you, you go back to the start of the, of the uh, paper here, and of course... Um, Sorry, let me just, I think I might, I, I'm just going to give myself one second to find it, if not, I'll just, I'll just um, use my, yeah, sorry, I'm just going to gloss it, paraphrase it, if I get it totally wrong, people can embarrass me about it later, that he says, we define a coin as a chain of signatures. So, um, that's really, the, the cryptographic definition of identity and the and the Bitcoin definition of money are completely conflated. Um, you know, there, there's nothing to what the money is that is not made up out of the resolution to a problem of identity. And so mm. that you pass, you'll see in all the more interesting, serious and less scammy uh, altcoin models, the first ones and the most serious ones tend to be about identity problems to do with credentialization, to do with various kind of problems that are, they still actually have to operate as if they were a currency to make this system work. But what they're really doing is just establishing identity, establishing authenticity, establishing like one whole model is called just proof of existence. You know, it simply works to show that something actually existed actually at a certain time. Uh, because as we know, this sort of time structure is at the core of, of what the blockchain does. So I think what you're saying is totally right, except I don't, I don't think we're, you know, confusing these things. I think we're simply picking up on the fact that they are being historically massively mm. run together. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Nick, I also wanted to like ask a ask a dumb question if you don't mind. 
I, I'd be thrilled. Okay. Actually, maybe it's a two-part two part dumb question or two dumb questions together. So maybe okay. dumb times dumb makes it smart, like negative times negative, but I doubt it. So the first question is, do you think, do you think like, uh, like we can look at like movement from social media and online avatar identity into Bitcoin identity, which is much more sort of like solid and in which this divide between real and the real and what, what's, what's virtual is more sort of like more apparent to the user and the way in which these are used. Like, so basically we're moving from this type of social media identity into a Bitcoin identity. So it's historical. Why? That's one question. Yeah. I mean, even though they're going to coexist for a long time. Second one is, um, how, you know, because the, the way Bitcoin gives you, the, the way Bitcoins generate value for you, we already know how, how, how Bitcoin works. But, but, what if your data footprint in terms of like the user of all these multiple social networks can somehow itself be economized in a way that can actually be integrated into Bitcoin or create a sort of like a Pierre Bourdieu secondary virtual economy, kind of like a cultural capital Bitcoin, which is about sort of like, you know, your clout, yeah. the likes you get. Yeah how much, yeah. you know what I mean, traffic your posts will generate or like how many friends you have and how much influence you have. Somehow, you're going to end up with another another different like real money economy or one that is actually in, incorporated into a Bitcoin easily. Right. So, yeah. No, I think they're both great, actually. Can, can I take them in the order that you, you raised them? Sure. I, I think sure. that... that um, because I think the first question, there's lots of ways we could approach it. I mean, my my initial crude answer would be just to be say yes, but I think that obviously requires more. And and I think it's really interesting to fold your question now back onto the issues that Laura's raising and, and turn it into another question or relate it to another question, which is to say, maybe even ask Laura, is it possible to actually have a defensive position in this virtual environment. Like, let, let's say that our big worry is these kind of things that are being done to our virtual identities. And, and again, you know, I'll just take Facebook as an example of just say that you've built up, some naive person has built up this massive uh, Facebook nucleated virtual identity and then realized with a shock horror after reading some article that this identity is being subject to a whole bunch of, of processes of whatever kind we can choose. Commercial maybe is the most obvious, but as I say, I think these these policing and security issues that we could bring in as well. And um, you know, and wants to respond to that. Um, what where Mo is coming from here, or what's raised by Mo's thing is is just I I'm reading it as saying we just have to give up on that as a possible line of defense. Like, you know, it's hopeless, it's indefensible. Um, and, and, that that's, and that Bitcoin is t teaching us, you know, what the hell were you thinking 
to have tied up your real identity and this avatar in such a way that this disaster is now befalling you. But but to turn it into a question is to say, is it that there is either alongside or even as a superior response a possibility of saying, no, we can actually take action on the plane of the virtual environment and do something about this, you know, without falling back across this rift uh, that is defending, you know, our pseudonymous online identity from our real identity. I mean, don't feel like I'm rushing you. I, you, you don't have to answer to it at all, or you can simply you can simply kick it down the down the pitch if you want to. But oh, it seems oh, but it's it's like what you what you're suggesting is totally like reasonable to consider to be considered. Yeah. Um. I don't know. First of all, let me apologize. I think I'm starting to fade a bit. <laughs> it's like quite late here, two a.m. Right. Sure. Um, but it. I think, I don't know, obviously Bitcoin is pointing towards a big issue that, and, and also I think, I just wanted to clarify before when I meant, when I was saying that the fact that now, you know, my data can be, I don't know, profiled into different ways and so that didn't mean like disturbing my, I mean, obviously it's like a disturbing thing perhaps for me, but I, I meant to say that it's anyway like a radically different way of, perhaps profiling uh, um, entities, I don't know, in reply to what Jake said before in terms of like what he was saying about the fact that like these modes of profiling have always existed, yes, but now I think there are some other kinds of formatting agencies which are obviously like algorithms uh, that create this kind of endless chain of repackaging of data and reprofiling data that are somehow considered anonymous still because supposedly they're not personal, like there's not my name on this, but somehow right. they still end up managing, you know, to bring it back to me or to that virtual identity that right. somehow represents me. But then the other point is perhaps the fact that before Bitcoin pointed to the fact that, you know, I mean, to, to this, to the, the complex relation in between the perhaps the empirical and the transcendental identities, I guess, or well, anyway, the formatted and then the, I think there was no other alternative, right? I mean, someone else built a network the way it is for right. some kind of reason. I think. I mean, what is what Bitcoin is pointing towards, or is like I guess addressing, is a complete reformatting of you know of of the way in which relations or lines are formed and of our way of thinking about it. I guess so. I don't know if this answered the question in any way. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's definitely closely connected for sure, and it's it's fascinating. I mean, we you know obviously we could spend a whole a whole uh, block of this on Facebook easily, um, but there's something, I have to admit that I find something deeply malignant about Facebook, and, and until Bitcoin came along, it had almost ruined all my attachment to the internet on a certain level. I mean, I just thought, oh my god, they wrecked the internet. 
you know, there was this amazing thing happening, and then Facebook happened, and oh my God, what what is this? Because the whole principle of it is about just uploading your identity in the most crass possible fashion onto the web, you know, and people were using the internet for all this amazing stuff and then suddenly they're simply saying hey this is me with as much naivety and narcissism uh, as could conceivably be kind of triggered and mustered from them um, and you know I mean it's not really appropriate to react to this thing with just revulsion but I have to just confess that that was the sort of just visceral response that I had to this happening um, so you know, I think Facebook does bring up this sort of problem in a really strong way because it really just it really just sucked people into these virtual avatars in the most helpless, pitiful, unreflective, vulnerable way that it could possibly be done. You know. And I think that that's traceable back to its history, you know, as the whole thing about starting off in a university as some kind of weird kind of dating type project, you know, where it's just like, if you were going to say, from looking back from the perspective of Bitcoin, how could you encourage people in an internet, on the internet, to behave in the most stupid possible way, it would look like Facebook, you know, it, was, it would be perfectly designed to do that thing. So yeah, I do think it's a special case of this, um, of this problem. No, I agree as well. I'm, I guess, yeah, I left Facebook a couple of years ago. I guess for very similar reasons, and still I know that my data are all in there, and I can't really do much about it. Like, but that's true. That's very true. Yeah. Nick, I also wanted to oh, like. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, Mo, I yeah. To, I also wanted to like because you talk about how Facebook started as a dating dating site, right? I but, mean, I might be misrepresenting it a little yeah, bit. But like, but like, people don't understand. This is like a total like line of work that needs to get done by some scholars, and I actually don't. Maybe some of it is actually done, but I doubt it because I would have heard about it. Which is sort of like the idea that like. Queer people, but particularly homosexual men, were on the forefront of forefront of avataring and forefront of particularly developing like a very specific type of avatar for a type of exchange, which is sexual exchange, right? That was sort of like involved certain types of personal revealing for certain type of exchanges. And this goes back to prior to HTTP. This goes back to news groups. And we're talking like pre like Netscape time, right? And how and then and then the the more contemporary incarnation of it is like the, the gay apps, right? Which which basically kind of like perfect that type of avataring, which is an avataring with a particular use of sexual exchange. So it's almost like Facebook. But minus all those like mindless stupidities, because the user knows why this avatar is made, how the how the avatar's appearance is supposed to function, and what's going to bring that. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's very different. Uh, some, well, it's some like, at least. It's more like Bitcoin. Yeah, except that I'm, I'm taking it from what you're saying that there is a that the bridge between the two sides of the self is crucial to it functioning. So you know, if it's designed for some sort of sexual exchange, then the avatar, the whole point is that, however strategically and with whatever kind of paranoia, that the avatar has to be linked to the real self in order to kind of conclude in this sexual exchange. Is that right? Whereas, I mean, with Bitcoin, it's like you don't ever want that line to be crossed. Um, you, you, we, as we've seen, you have to have these off ramps and not on ramps in order to move money in and out of Bitcoin. But though you don't ever want to uh, to set up a bridge between your um, on-system formatted Bitcoin ID and your real ID. The whole thing has that. I mean, it's coming out of this totally this culture again. I'm sorry to be using paranoia so much, but it it, it it's relevant in a lot of different contexts. And this is another kind of paranoia. This is coming out of this whole extreme cypherpunk anarcho culture of hackers where these questions of absolute identity security are just at the front of their minds all the time. You know, and so in that's way it's totally the anti-Facebook. There's no way Dread Pirate Roberts is going to put a picture of his cat on Bitcoin. I mean, it just doesn't, it just doesn't figure in the horizon of possibilities. He's not wanting anyone to find out anything about him at all. Um, um, whereas, obviously, Facebook is the other extreme where it's all about simply letting it all hang out on the web. And the example Mo's giving is this complicated, nuanced interzone, isn't it? In the sense that uh, because it's a problem because it's diff because there are sources of paranoia there involved. It's not a let it all hang out situation, but at the same time, at the end of the day, it's a it's about making a connection that's actually going to cross this identity split. Um, if if your avatar was such that when it actually came to some kind of contact, the response was, "What the hell?" You know, I thought I thought you were a cat. Then the whole thing's failed completely. I'm assuming is that right? Yes, but it doesn't. But it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. back on the avatar or like in a, in a in a in a real world. This is this is this is what's interesting about this. Is what's interesting about like uh, about the type of exchange I was talking about because there's no way to reflect back the 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 actual exchange that happens outside of the of the sex app back into the users in the app right so if 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 someone present themselves as like something else and then in an actual encounter it it ends up being verified that that it wasn't there's no way for that information to go back into the system like there's no review system that somebody come and say oh that guy is not as handsome as he pretends to be. Don't don't date him. Or like, oh, he like da 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 da. He's a crazy guy. He's a killer. Wow. You know, don't yeah. don't date him. He's a killer. He's a serial killer. He almost <laughs> There's no way to put. Well, well, that back. Whereas with Facebook, we all know how it works. It's constantly 
looping back, right? Right. I mean, actually, because I, I dropped the, your second question, Mo, and now you've got a route back to it again. Because yes, sorry. obviously, it, it, it doesn't answer your full question, which is, which is something I hope we can continually return to about this thing about economizing these various dimensions of online credit in the wider sense, you know, like reputational credit, yeah, everything that's involved in these various kind of stats or measures of, of, of um, uh, prestige, I guess, in various ways. But, but it definitely does seem to be the case in the example that you're just giving now that some system of credentials would have been functionally essential to that system. Like, why did any of these avatars have any credibility at all if there's no system of monitoring, feedback, uh, you know, they're simply unchecked, wild fantasies can be projected out into the system and there's, there's no comeback on that at any stage. I'm not, I'm not understanding how that could work. Maybe. I don't know whether most are with should chime in here. As yeah, for sure. No, no, I'm here. I'm here. I'm contemplating. I'm, con I'm trying to see if that was a question for me. Should I say something or... Uh... Yeah, I, I mean, well, Anyone is is open to this. I mean, if uh, Amy thinks Virginia is 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 pre-programmed to respond uh, uh, to this question, did, did you catch the whole thing that Mo was talking about here, Virginia? You got the whole back yes. backstory to this. Yeah, I did. Right. I did. I've been um, just uh, half sleeping and half listening because I've just yeah, had a yeah. ten-hour drive. But anyway. Um, uh, Yes, yeah, so um, I suppose I was um, I was thinking about the uh, pre-Netscape uh, avatar um, uh, constructions and and whether or not those were um, were were economizable or whatever um, and Facebook and and that Facebook is uh, this kind of um, dumbed down um, kind of uh, network I suppose um, and also how um, in the pre-Netscape so, for example, um, example Lambda Moo or uh, Moo's and Muds, that there was a much more of a, a downloading of, uh, of... I'm so glad you said that. I was just about to talk about that, but go ahead. Thank a, you. A da downloading of... Um, of... Whatever. <laughs> That were oh no 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 much more of a making of pornography by the yeah, making and making and uh, making but also downloading things that like seem to have value at that particular point in terms of its digital worth right like a lot of people yeah. like like downloading music downloading movies downloading 
downloading things was like a big part of those pre-Netscape avatars. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, um, sorry, I'm, I'm half asleep. I'll, I'm just going to have a think. Sure, that's good. Don't <laughs> don't be rushed because I mean that's already I think really interesting is this thing that obviously there's been this tidal reversal, hasn't it, from a thing where you have some kind of avatar initially very minimalistic that is just an access point for you to suck stuff off the web, um, and at a certain point that behavior, that system of acquisitions becomes itself a form of identity uh, formation, which I think has to involve, you know, a complex set of technical developments and just simply quantitative increases in capacity for storing and registering and compiling and integrating data. But the, the, the present situation is where when you now take things off the web, you're actually defining yourself on the web as the sort of person who takes this off the web. Down to this fine-grained things, to what you've looked at, what magazine articles, what you've clicked on, all of that, all your consumption is now part of your identity formation, which is why you get to this whole issue that Laura's been talking about. It's because increasingly that's seamlessly integrated and people now know what you've looked at, what kind of keywords, Google search words you're interested in. All your modes of online consumption are now actually being synthesized as this virtual persona, which becomes massively rich uh, because of that. You know, it's like quite quickly with some um, sort of active online life, the amount of these decisions and choices and options that you've made is, is huge and gives a very fine-grained picture of the kind of things you're interested in, the kind of things that you're not interested in, the kind of things obviously that you might want to buy, and all of these forms of orientation, you know, whether it's consumer orientation, sexual orientation, political orientation, in fine-grained detail now adhered, glued together on this virtual avatar. So, I mean, the distance that's been traveled from these moo and mud type things where it was really very much a theatrical thing that you create a character who you think you'd like to create and be represented by, this is automatic and it's, and it's created by what you do, not by your idea of what you would like to be or how you would like people to see you. Yeah, I think I think I think uh, Virginia is just kind of confirming some of the stuff you were saying on the sidebar. Anyways, it's nine twenty, and we were supposed to basically be done seven thirty, seven to eight. Yeah, we're we're still ten minutes from the class to officially end, and then since we started actually ten minutes late, we're we got about 20 minutes of time left for the seminar. We went way over time last time, so it would be perfectly fine if 
people feel like they want to finish here, we can. But if there's questions or people people think they have something to add, I think I think I think officially we can have 20 more minutes uh, before the class ends. Um, I was curious, Nick, that one of the videos you recommended um, in the classroom was an interview with um, an economist, I believe. Um, Maybe even the president of Harvard University at some it's point. It's not uh, the Larry Summers one you're talking I, it, about. The financial, the financial museum. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was Larry Summers. I, okay, I thought yeah. that was a very interesting video. Actually. Yeah, I was just curious um, if maybe we could talk about that for a second. I didn't have a specific question, but I thought he had a very moderate position, right. for lack of yeah. a better way of putting it, where it was kind of like for Bitcoin to take off, it's going to need to be regulated. Yeah. Um, it was sort of like it's going to have to combine with the current norm, it's not going to be a revolution, so to speak, but it will have important consequences. Right. Um, sort of my, my, you know, I, I, I yeah. Anyways, I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm interested in, in what your thoughts on that were. Yeah. Well, from my sort of readings around the discussions taking place within what for want of a better expression, but I hate this one, so it really is something being used as a disposable a disposable thing. The Bitcoin community, uh, th there is one overwhelmingly important argument taking place in it. You know, there's lots of interesting stuff happening around the edge or whatever, but when you're inside it, there's only one fundamental argument, uh, which has different aspects to it. And it's between what I would describe as ultras and mainstreamers. And the ultras are very, very sharp, energized people who you will find concentrated in like the Nakamoto Institute site, which is excellent. And a, and a lot of the sort of dedicated Bitcoin media represent them a lot. I, I, I'll provide some names. I mean, I've used them before. You know, Daniel Goldstein, Pierre Rochard, Daniel Kravitz. There's a there's a bunch of these guys. But if you go through the um, Nakamoto Institute, what's called meme pool, memory pool, all that all that stuff is is there, and it's a very very rich source of that stuff. And those guys are the people I think that Larry Summers is kind of uh, subtly or not so subtly um, dismissing as when he talks about the, the hyper-libertarian atmosphere around Bitcoin, which is what is traditional. It's come out of a bunch of hackers, anarcho-capitalists, cypherpunks. I mean, all of these people are integrated on these kind of things, like deep suspicion of government, um, you know, absolute attachment to a sense of unconditional anonymity, um, and... You, those are the kind of traits we're talking about. And on the other side, and more recent, uh, but obviously much better funded, for one thing, are the mainstreamer guys. And by far, to my mind, the most interesting of these characters is Mark Andreessen. Um, again, 
I lose track of what I've sort of put on various kind of reading lists and stuff. But if I haven't, he did an absolutely superb interview about Bitcoin. Um, I think it was for the Washington Post. I'll definitely link to it. Um, um, which was Bitcoin boosting hugely, but from a completely different orientation to the one that these ultras are, are, are like. He, it's Bitcoin boosting in a way that's extremely close to the Larry Summers position. Mm. And he actually says, eventually those libertarians are going to realize that the public ledger is the greatest uh, gift to conventional forms of regulation and oversight that could ever be imagined for financial um, innovation. You know, this thing is totally harmless. Mm -hmm. Anything that you've heard from those crazy anarchists about this is going to collapse the financial system is ridiculous, and we have to create a world in which it's safe to invest large amounts of money in this coming revolution. That's but in the softest, most gentle, friendly form of revolution that is going to come from um, rolling out this Bitcoin infrastructure. So these people, Mark Andreessen, even more than Larry Summers totally convinced that the blockchain is not going to go away. It's an innovation of primary importance, but it can be mainstreamed. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, you can see what Larry Sam was saying completely within that context. That he's saying the establishment, whether with the financial establishment, the government can live with this and they can live with it because all the dangerous, scary stories we've heard about it aren't really true. Uh, you know, the, uh, the establishment is quite competent to manage it, and we simply can't let this innovation not occur just because the people on the front end of it were who they were. Mm -hmm. You know, and and now I mean, I'm I think I can't pretend that I'm neutral between these two positions. It's simply the case the ultras are a lot more exciting <laughs> guys, and they're much more conceptually adventurous than the than the mainstreamers. But both sides are interesting, and the mainstream position also is strongly supported by retrospective look at the history of the internet, because all kinds of stages of the internet have been attended by the same wave of extreme, again, quasi-anarchistic excitement, followed by mainstreaming. You know, so you look at yeah. the guys who were first putting all this stuff together in the garage, and they, they too thought this was going to bring down, bring down the state, that it was going to kind of superpower mm -hmm. individuals, that all kinds. And you know, we end up with Facebook. Um, so it's hard on the base of that record to dismiss this type of thinking, that's for sure. And, and the interesting thing, like we were talking about it before you joined the class, uh, Nick, or you maybe you, you were before, before we go live, is that the media theory and academic people are mostly followed, they mostly follow the mainstreaming. And this is what's fascinating to me. That like the the lag between media theory and theorization of all of this and mainstreaming is is sort of like it's sort of fascinating, and that's why 
I don't want to self-congratulate us for being in this seminar, but that's why I think it's kind of crucial that like we're doing the Bitcoin and philosophy right now, almost just just a little bit prior to its mainstreaming. So right. you know, because normally the academia enters the picture, or humanity, particular type of academia, because yeah. Nakamoto is academic, but I'm talking about humanities, right? They yeah. kind of enter the picture after the, you know, the serious, the serious side of it, right? Because yeah. a lot of academic people were thinking and talking about hyperlink and internet, but none of them were like were as half as interesting as CCRU or what you guys were doing, which is completely underground and, and you know, it didn't last long. But, but yeah, so like, so, so main, the, the mainstream academia is usually like a step, like, like there's a lag with them and the mainstreaming. Yeah. I mean, this ties up with this whole thing Ian was saying about um, Zizek, doesn't it, too? I mean, it's kind of interesting that he would so blithely confess to, if not an, a lack of, well, I mean, implicitly to a massive lack of interest, actually, isn't it? You know, so I'm not even really seeing what the narrative behind that is. Is it that he's saying implicitly, this isn't serious? Or is he saying something else? I mean, he's supposed to be a kind of theorist of capitalism. Right, I know. It, I just wanted to clarify one thing, not, not to, to cut you off, so continue as soon as I finish. No, no. I just wanted to say that um, my impression um, was that he just didn't know very much about it. Not that he um, didn't know very much about it because he didn't think it's very serious, though I don't. I just one simply doesn't know. Yeah. It, that may, that may be the case, but he didn't say that it's. He doesn't take it seriously. Right. Yeah. So I just wanted. Yeah. But there's it's obviously not, a weird nonlinearity there, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, what if he if he simply doesn't know? I mean, it's not so obscure. Right. Um, That's what. Yeah. So so it at least suggests to me that there's a kind of orientation of awareness that has mm -hmm. to have some strategy behind it such that it could pass under the radar. And I mean, like Mo says, he, I'm just using him as, a, as an example. I mean, um, because, he's a, he, because he normally he's someone who you would think would want to be on the edge of these kind of topics because it seems right. so close to sort of things that should concern him. Um, but, I mean, uh, it's interesting to me that even this topic you know, Bitcoin and philosophy, you would think is pretty white bread kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, and yet it doesn't really seem, it really doesn't seem to be much to, to pull up at, at this stage on, on this topic. I don't know why that is. Yeah, it's, you know, I wonder if um, it's kind of a, I hate to say this, but it's a, it's not being hip to the, Tech to how fast technology is moving to some extent. Um, I think it's just so important to be on top of it. Um, but uh, it's in the context of, of his talk that I asked this question. The context was about high-frequency trading and, the, and this idea that uh, there are fiber optic cables being built. Uh, there was apparently already one between Chicago and New York but now overseas so that, uh, for example, if somebody was to buy a stock, in the time it, it takes after they click the button 
for that data to be sent to the, the place which is going to then sell it, um, it's, let's say it takes seven milliseconds for it to literally travel right. the cable and be processed. That, yeah. um, or, or sorry, over Wi-Fi or however, satellites, that, that fiber optic cable will allow um, people to beat that, that sale, um, get in the middle of it right. within a seven-second period to then. Well, seems like, seems like, seems like he's been reading the latest issue of Collapse and Nick and Alex's yeah. essay on cunning automata, right? Mm. Well, this, um, this whole high-frequency trading thing is obviously fascinating to people, isn't it? As one particular way that the, the, these very easily indexed axis of technological development impinges on, on the economy in a really strong way. Like, I don't know whether you saw this story about there are now these laser receptors that have been put up within, the, around the block of these key financial institutions in New York mm. so that at the speed of light, you don't, you don't have to be more than one block away from the source of information. Um, you know, because if that light beam had to travel a kilometer, you would be out of the loop in terms of the response time that is now expected in these trades. I mean, it's just hitting these absolute cosmic limits now where, um, you know, light, the speed of light is, is, is being mm -hmm. perceived as a fundamental barrier to the speed of executing certain trades. Hmm. May I ask? What Zizek should have really like, um, I may uh, I may have to move to to my uh, power. What he should have really thought about was the fact that a lot of these this speed is accommodated for for intelligent machine trading and not human trading. Like yeah, of course. Like these yeah. speeds are not for humans because they're not for the click yeah. of the humans. Actually, it is mostly for uh, for machines to be able to like. Run those algorithms and he make them yeah. right? Yeah, he, he didn't yeah. take that into account. I mean, he basically said it's all automated. I mean, it's not yeah. like a human's making these decisions. Of course, we're talking about less than seven milliseconds. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. May I? Oh. <laughs> oh, I, I, uh, uh, I'm trying to. Uh, to ask the question, but uh, you still continue talking, and <laughs> uh, so you, are, are you all finished? Yes, no, no, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, uh, am I right when uh, uh, when I uh, characterize our society that it becomes more uh, chaotic? <laughs> it uh, uh, it becomes more more and more shapeless and it uh, finds more and more ways to uh, avoid uh, from any form any um, regu uh, regulation that uh, we are uh, uh, that we want so so what well, I'm, I'm not sure I'm hanging on to what the subject of this uh, is uh, am, I, uh, am I right in uh, characteristic? Uh, of our society that it uh, avoids uh, of oh, any right. 
uh, any um, control, any uh, forms, any uh, shapes. It becomes more shagotic. It becomes uh, it always uh, can find an, a new way to uh, to uh, avoid our control, to avoid our plans and our uh, ideas how uh, our society should be. Well, I don't know. It's 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 interesting, but also complicated that your the two subjects of a sentence is our society, isn't it? Like you're saying, isn't it true about our society that it is this evasive, complicated blob, and it's escaping our control? So I mean, what are I'm not really seeing what the contestants they seem to me to be folding into each other in a slightly um, intriguing fashion. Like this. I mean, aren't aren't we society, or I mean, what is this society that is not that is escaping us? I'm not quite getting it. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, uh, I uh, more and more uh, think that uh, it's um, uh, this uh, wor word is uh, um, almost senseless. It uh, um, it doesn't uh, has an, any real meaning, and uh, I remember your article uh, on the outside in. Uh, uh, it's uh, a, a uh, I may be pronounced wrong. Trichotomocracy, right? Uh, sorry, was it, was, say, can you? I'm sorry to get you to repeat what is obviously a hideous piece uh, of no, article, uh, I remember your article. Trichotomocracy. Uh, 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 Right, uh, and uh, you uh, described the um, uh, the system, uh, the system of uh, of uh, uh, of, of uh, how we should structure the society. Uh, uh, so, uh, how uh, is it? Uh, correlates to what uh, are you saying today? Um, you know, I, I think, well, maybe it's uh, yeah. I, 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 I think that it's slightly complicated um, because obviously there's a lot of context that I think is. Um, involved in this that it's not going to be straightforward to people without some background to it. It's a, it's, it was part of a, a sort of tangled internal debate and I think if I'm remembering the right article, it's a while since I've looked at this post, it was formulated as a kind of science fiction as a kind of science fiction projection, wasn't it? Um, in order to uh, in order to shake up certain positions that were already sort of established, like, um, yeah. I think, you know, that it would, I, that I would have to sort of reread this thing and then reflect upon what we've talked about today and make the connection, because it's not a connection that is ready to hand for me at the moment. I can't. I'd, I'd have to sort of 
think about it. Maybe, maybe on the maybe on the classroom, maybe on the classroom page. Yeah, for sure. Everybody here has access to the classroom page, right? If you don't, just email me or ask me, and I'll send you the code that you can uh, link in the code to have access to it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I and thought, try sort of without wanting to bully people. Try to put one sentence on in the week. You know what I mean? It can be short, it can be inherent, the grammar can be terrible, lots mm -hmm. of spelling mistakes, all fine. But just, even if just to say, could we perhaps talk about this next week? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, this seems to me something that we could push into a bit further. You know, I mean, of course people are very welcome to say more than that, but I think it would be just helpful just in terms of people for themselves getting some sense about the tack that they want to be taking into into the topic, and and sorry, can I while I'm babbling, can I just say, I'm go, I've got a kind of four week topic organization going ahead. There's flexibility for that, but I will use that as a kind of constraint on for myself on what I'm going to treat the 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 next four weeks as being about. So if people want to do big structural moving around exercises on that on that topic list, then they should get started and levering away because it's like set in stone to a certain extent for me. It's not that I know exactly what is going to be said, but it's just that that grid is something I'll be relying on personally. Cool. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for the heads up. Okay. So, are there more questions? Because we're past a couple of minutes past the time. Are there more questions, or people want to continue the discussion, or should we uh, should we end it here? Nothing I, in the scope of the next few minutes. I just wanted to to say one 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 last thing. Just following well, we up. We can go over time as long as Nick doesn't mind, right? Last week we went like forty minutes over time because the conversation was interesting. Yeah. I, I'm still cool, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's this is I just wanted to go back for one second to that video because I felt um right. when you, you it got into the mainstreamers versus the ultra and that was really interesting. I wanted to say one thing specifically that what I what one thing I found peculiar about the video was his analogies. And um maybe this just ties into why he's a mainstreamer, but in particular there were two. One was with regards to the FFA and main oh, right. and mainstream airline yeah. like the, the network of airlines in America uh, I believe he was talking about America uh, yeah. and he said that uh, you know without the FFA we wouldn't have this this transportation system yeah. uh, and the proliferation of it in the way that we do so that was one metaphor the other one was he talked about some kind of common law commonwealth corporation. yeah 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 totally and then he says he says, and I might be mixing up the analogies, but basically the idea was these companies that initially didn't want to be taxed, like internet companies, um, yeah. now desperately want to be taxed because it means that what they're doing is legal. Right. So he's kind of saying, like, we need the FFA for Bitcoin. Right. We need the thing that can be taxed like the yeah. centralized and it seems so yeah. antithetical to like you know the philosophical principles of bitcoin right. 
Yeah. No, there were know. two stages to that. I mean, it, it, it was it was really fascinating. The whole thing. I totally agree with you. The the first stage was where he said the biggest step forward for the common law corporation was the ability to be sued. Oh, right, 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 right. And then and then he with the same kind of logic actually, and that that's a very interesting. I mean, to be honest, both are interesting, but I think that that point to me is especially crucially interesting because it is tied up with a very deep issue at the core of Bitcoin which is to do with self-binding. You know, it seems like contradictory on one level that you could be empowered by self-restriction. You know, it's this famous Nietzsche thing about an animal with the right to make promises. Mm. Um, but actually, it keeps cropping up over and over again, this issue. Like, obviously, on one level, Bitcoin, you cannot cheat. You know, you, therefore, you, you cannot double spend. It's an actual constriction of your capacities that allows it to then, therefore, that a Bitcoin, a Bitcoin transaction has the value it does, be precisely because it is pre-constricted by this system. Um, and the game theory one, which I think uh, this blogger Scott Alexander, who's really smart, interesting guy, uh, makes very clearly, where he says, look, in game theory, this self-constriction thing happens all the time. I don't know whether this is the example I'm... Yeah, the example that he gives is the, is the uh, Dr. Strangelove one about the machine that automates nuclear retaliation. So you cannot, if you are subject to nuclear strike, you cannot choose not to respond. And therefore, you're constricting and inhibiting your power. But in strict game theoretical terms, it's a very powerful move because people know if they subject you to a nuclear attack, they will be retaliated against. Um, and there is no possibility of that not happening. Or the one that I think is even more fun is this thing about the game of chicken, you know, the two cars r racing towards each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the winning move in chicken is not only to be seen knocking back a bottle of vodka before you get in the car, but then very conspicuously as you're approaching maximum speed to hurl the steering wheel out of the window so that the other vehicle driver knows you cannot you cannot dodge even if you want to. You know, you have mm -hmm. you have eliminated your possibility of swerving and therefore they are then put in the dilemma that they swerve or die you know the option that if they don't swerve you might is now no longer part of the of the scenario so they crop up all the time these and I I I respected him for that point even whatever my disagreements I thought he was understanding something important about it um, but I think again you'll find that Andreessen and these people would be very in tune with this. You know that um, if you seriously want to make money out of Bitcoin, they would say, then you don't try and avoid the tax man. You don't try and you, you, you these pirates aren't where the big bucks are. The big bucks, as in building up this massive, you know, worldwide web, whatever we're onto now, 5.0 or something, on the basis of the blockchain. You know, massive capital investment and all of that, and just play the game nicely and pay your taxes and obey the regulation and try and keep out irritating little players and all of that stuff. And 
and that's how you are going to get rich. And I, I'm sure that is a mm. growing gotcha. position. Yeah. I mean, of course, all the ultras are absolutely. That's actually the main part of the mainstreaming, right? Yeah, that is the mainstreaming process. A hundred percent. You know that that this is something that we can digest into our recognizable social structures. Mm -hmm. Right. Gotcha. Thanks. More questions or comments, or should we uh, end, the, end the session? Laura, I heard you were going to say something earlier on, but then uh, Igor took over, and then you didn't really finish it. You still want to say it? Yeah, but it's okay. Otherwise, I'm just going to post it on the classroom. I'll bring it up next. It just had to do with the double spending thing. I don't know. I, can, it, can we just go on for another minute? Yeah, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I already put okay. it on the main screen, screen, so go ahead. Thanks. Um, yeah, well, I had a question about which I guess it ties with all these um, issues. Like, So basically, we started Bitcoin, right? It, it tries to tackle the problem of the um, double spending, uh, the doubling yeah. spending of identity, right? But I was thinking in relation to finance, what about the doubling of risk? I'm thinking about synthetic finance, uh, um, credit derivatives, uh, um, CDOs, and so all these financial instruments that basically yeah. they don't have any underlying asset, right? So yeah, I was and and obviously people like I don't know, for instance, Andreessen and and other I guess mainstreamers, I don't know, but like. They they try to push also the financial side of, of right of, of of Bitcoin. So I was thinking, yeah, is I don't know. What about the problem of the of the doubling of risk? Perhaps is it I don't know. In in sorry, wait, sorry with the doubling of risk. You you mean how about how can Bitcoin accommodate these credit operations? Is that no, well, how can he eventually, not really accommodating, like Bitcoin is sort of solved the problem of double spending and yeah. doubling of identity, which is online. So maybe, I don't know, is it doing anything or is there anything in the protocol or is there anything that Bitcoin could do or could have any potential in terms of solving the problem of the doubling of risk that is characteristic of contemporary finance. Oh yeah, I mean Bitcoin in its in its basic form will ex eliminate it entirely. Right. I mean there's all criticism that could be made at that from all from conventional yeah. macroeconomic perspective, you know, it's deflationary, it's completely there is no yeah. financial discretion, all of these arguments could be made, but it simply does not facilitate credit operations at all. You know, if you right. if we do a transaction, I have to transfer a certain number of bitcoins from my account into your account. I can't. I promise to pay you bitcoins at some future time has no meaning yeah. within Bitcoin at all. I cannot do fractional reserve spending. I cannot take some bitcoins from you and lend out eight times that number of bitcoins to other people, like banks do with fiat currencies. All of these basic financial operations simply cannot occur. In, but, in Bitcoin. 
I don't know, because for instance, I know that there are some some exchanges in which you can trade the derivatives of Bitcoin, of the value of Bitcoin, according to, I don't know, other I'm sure, whatever. but they are off-protocol exchanges. I mean, we could yeah. do a deal now, couldn't we? I mean, I could say to you, look, yeah. if Bitcoin is worth uh, $500 in two months' time, you give me X amount of money, or I give you X amount of money, or we could have a bet on the value of Bitcoin privately now, mm. nothing stopping us. And so that's about Bitcoin, but it's only about Bitcoin in the same way that if we were betting on a, a football match or we were betting on a political election or any of these things, you know? It's a completely extraneous side bet that we, we are making on it. Yeah. So, of course, the people involved probably have an interest in making it look as if it's actually more integrated than that. It's, you know, there's very similar things in the gold market. You know, you can engage in all kinds of weird derivative trading about gold price and whatever that is completely paper-based and virtual and has nothing to do with a piece of gold in your basement. Um, and the people doing that want that aura of a piece of gold in your basement to spread onto their stuff, you know, and make you think that you're in the gold market and the security and solidity and all of that stuff of gold somehow rubs off on these financial operations. But they are separate things. Um, so, I mean, the, the essence of that maybe is that it, these exchanges where you can trade complex derivatives ultimately require escrow and enforcement. Right, because the only way to really make it stick is if somebody takes hold. Uh, I mean, either people get tracked down for welshing on their bets, or they put money down up front to cover their bets. That, that yeah, with a bookie who right. provides escrow services yeah. and then gives it back at the end. Is an alternative to that maybe to take one of these blockchain identity schemes? And I mean, I, this seems like, as far as I can imagine, it seems like only loose enforcement. But if you link a derivative trader identity established on an altcoin blockchain to the blockchain recording the transactions for the currency you're actually writing derivatives on, like I don't know, the image in my head is kind of a double helix, but where your your identity is forsworn or penalized if you welsh on bets that you've made in the writing of a derivative on your original currency. Like does that provide an alternative solution that wouldn't, you know, involve sort of transcendent enforcement? Yeah. I mean, I say yup in the sense that I, I'm 100% convinced that people are working on that stuff. I mean, it, it, it depends where you are on the spectrum, like the Andreessen types. Because they expect there to be a smooth continuum, really, between at the end, one end, like hard Bitcoin transactions, and on the other, this whole new Bitcoin economy with all kinds of financial instruments associated with it and running off side chains like you say, um, they'd have no problem with that at all and they would say look some smart startup in Silicon Valley is going to work out maybe a coin that will support some kind of um, um, derivatives activity on the edge of the blockchain and they think that that was completely straightforward. Um, Obviously, as you move down towards the ultra end, then you get people asking more pointedly, well, can you really do this without a third party? And if you need a third party, you're obviously just, as far as they're concerned, off the blockchain. I mean, it's not even 
interesting from their point of view. It's just confusing people if if you actually have a, a sort of secondary or para-financial system that's kind of just marginal to Bitcoin and supporting a whole sense of Bitcoin-related activities, but with third-party-based, trust-based, traditional financial structures there. Um, so I don't know. It's a, if the question more specifically is, could this particular thing be fully automated without a transcendent, without a third party, on some kind of blockchain? Then you're, I'd have to, I'd have to spend hours thinking about that. I mean, it's like complicated. Yeah, I guess that was pretty much it. And yeah, obviously, it, it, I need to have a good think about that as well. I guess it was just more if there was a question there, it was just, you know, can we rigorously separate that uh, to the extent that it could exist, you know, at least in principle, from transcendent escrow and enforcement, or could we generalize yeah. escrow and, uh, and enforcement as an alternative category to, you know, complementary identity chains? I think that, look, there's one position that maybe is like diagonal to this, where people say anything that involves trust potentially could be moved onto the blockchain with a sufficiently clever solution. And that the blockchain has just shown us that trust can be substituted for this automated protocol. And with, you know, that ultimately then the problem is almost like just topological. That we just have to work out how our particular trust problem we've got now can be twisted and shaped so it can just slot into a blockchain-oriented solution, and then we've solved it, you know. And I think that that's, it's not clear if, if we're on this kind of mainstream versus ultra line, it's not clear where that would belong. I think either could perhaps live with that. Yeah, I mean, it'd be pretty extraordinary because that would, seems like that would kind of amount to a practical purpose for this transcendental inquiry would be working out like a general formalism or something or other for converting these trust problems into blockchain solutions, which would be, well, extraordinary yeah. is about the best I can do. Yes, I mean, a general, I mean, it tends to be in all these kind of, uh, outer edge capitalistic sort of innovations that you have these kind of girdle type problems don't you where there's no final there's no final formalism but there's always the potential for a superior formalism that's going to address those particular inconsistencies that your last formalism missed out on right. you know and and largely through game theoretic things because people are always trying to arbitrage and exploit particularly precisely those un tangled edges of the system so they're always going to be you know people will find those inconsistencies and exploit them and and therefore provide a kind of an economic incentive for someone to then address that so I would expect that sort of dynamic more than a kind of final formula right. that's just going to deal with that for all time but I think the principle of a rolling open-ended potential for formalization for sure is imaginable, yeah. Okay. I, I could just, before, because I'm keeping everyone up now, but just to say to Igor that it's kind of a bit coming back, what he was asking about, and I'm sorry that I was so incompetent at answering that question, and it was definitely to do with distributed 
it was to do with systems of distributed control. So I do think in that way it's relevant, but I think it would be better for me to address it. I'll go and reread the thing again and, and look at it and um, respond properly. I don't okay. Think this is a good time to ask this oh. question. Oh, sorry. No. Go, ahead. go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Go, I mean, go. Uh, no, okay. Because it relates to last week's course that I missed, but I didn't want the question to get away too far um, uh, into the the last module. It was about this this kind of shorthand narrative of modernity that you gave towards the middle about um, uh, the idea that the negation of teleology initiate a new kind of um, modality of engaging with technical or mechanical systems, which then ends up bringing back a new kind of telos yeah. in that um, moment. And I was wondering, because this is a question that I've been uh, trying to think through a lot recently, if this is a, a way of, uh, like in the long form um, understanding of what modernity does, of reconciling the two, the problem of modernity's obsession with novelty and the idea of fate. And, and so this notion that there is a kind of um, um, return to fate through novelty and the two are intrinsically linked in, in a way like how we were talking before about the, um, the, the horror of the double in a way. Um, and that if this, the kind of technical question I had in relation to um, uh, your piece in the Accelerate Reader was that is this second teleology um, is something that we then need to understand as what you call teleonomy. Is, is, is there a kind of, is there a distinction between this, this sort of, um, right. this secondary teleology yeah. and, and the idea of teleonomy or does it come back as teleonomy because it's um, yeah. active in a different substrate? I think, as you'd expect me to say that, I think it's complicated. I mean, the trouble is, that the word teleology was at a certain stage super politicized and all politicized language becomes unwieldy very quickly. I mean we know with all our political vocabulary that the words are sleazy and confusing and move around and kind of switch meanings and as soon as there is a kind of politicization of language it becomes extremely difficult to to get a grip on it in the way that you can with other terms and because the case against teleology was so intrinsic to the kind of um, initial which is also the most violent and fanatical and enthusiastic impetus of modernity and therefore at the time was a kind of super politicized piece of vocabulary the echoes of that I think are still with us and so I think that you hear people talking about teleonomy precisely because teleology is like still too radioactive, you know, which I think is both interesting. I mean, it's a triple thing. It's, it's, it's interesting. It tells us something as well that is actually in the way you describe recursively tied up with, with actually this exact teleological process. Um, but it's also... Um, oh, so hang on one second, a third part. 
yeah, sorry, I've, I've got a kind of thread of thought collapse at that moment. I mean, um, it it's something that I think requires suspicion, you know, and I think a lot of people use teleonomy because they simply don't want to touch teleology, but there's no reason for it that could be articulated in a way that isn't ultimately this political negotiation with the word. Um, you know, it's like, it, obviously biology in particular, it's like all the time tries to talk about teleology, but will never use that word. You know, it would be an utter death sentence for them to do it. And they've managed to get teleonomy on, and the trend will be for teleonomy to become the most perfect substitute, an absolute clone, in terms of its semantic content, of an intelligent sense of teleology, because that's what the word is for. But that final step of saying, well, come on, damn it, you know, this, this big fight was 500 years ago, now can we just have this word back? It isn't going to isn't going to happen, in my opinion. It's just too baked in the cake. Is that what's behind the, the necessity to then to, to coin a new term um, and to come up with the the, um, the the name teleoplexy? Is that what was behind that kind of part of the... Um, actually, to be honest, I would have to go back to it again <laughs> because I don't think if that was, it's a particularly justifiable... It, it's so purely tactical that it would surprise me that I could be quite so depraved quite so recently. But, I mean, it is possible, <laughs> and, and I would have to have a look at it to, to, to say. Um, Alright, cool. Thanks. But, I mean, on your basic point, though, I, I, all I can do is just totally endorse the suggestion. You know, I think it's. I think it has to be, an exactly that nexus of of innovation and faith. But innovation dramatized to the point of total historical break, and at the same time, precisely as a fatality. Um, you know, the introduction of a fatality. So I think it's. I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. Thank, thank you so much, Nick. Okay, everyone. Thank. Sorry to keep everyone in this. No, no, no. I'm just saying thank you. Particularly, not saying like it's it's a, end, but just to say thank you for the response and see if if other like the, for final comments you have something to say or if anybody still has something they want to talk about. This is the last call. If this was a bar, <laughs> yeah, it, it's looking to me a little bit like a sort of embarrassing recollections of the scenes of rock festivals when I was seventeen years old, and people have not slept for three three nights. <laughs> but I mean, maybe I'm just projecting that onto everyone. No, just projecting. Though we all are, it's amazing. The time zone differences here are incredible. I, mean, yeah. I was up at six thirty, and it must be three, four a.m. coming on. No, I was up. I, I, I usually get up at like five fifteen, and I start setting up the the, the procedure. So oh I've been up God. in Vancouver five fifteen a.m. But so, I, I, oh, I, I like that. Uh, Amy's question kind of took us back.
Hmm. Oh, Ian's frozen now, is that right? Yes. you got to finish on a loop, right? Yeah. Took us back. Okay, I guess Ian is gone. Oh, there he is. Oh, no, he's no, back. I'm here. I don't yeah, know what happened. Yes. We didn't hear a word of what you like the, what you were trying to say. Oh shoot. Oh I just I just said Well that. we heard the last thing we heard was you said took us back. Oh took us back to the first or seriously. second class. Um uh, where where you mentioned those really interesting thoughts about um teleology and the scholastics and Aristotle and 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 um kind of getting over a, a kind of teleology. I thought all that was really interesting, so I'm great that that's a part of the conversation still. Grateful that that is. I'm grateful to Amy. Yeah, good. Sorry, I was pi pirating some some sample libraries <laughs> to make music later. My internet's right. down now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so can is it is it finished? Can we can we wrap up today? Sounds good. Yeah, from my point of view, it would be it would be fine. I don't know if is everyone else okay with that. Okay, okay thanks as always, Mo. And and your 515 thing is now going to haunt my dreams. So. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I look forward to this. And I, I have a system of waking up that is really good. The way I do it is I make a cup of Americano coffee and I leave it next to my bed. And then when my alarm rings, I just get up, I drink it, and I push snooze. And then I go back to bed. But within two minutes, the, the coffee just wakes you up. And then you're like, okay, I'm done. So by the time well, you ring second time, you're already up and you're like kind of yeah. like totally like speed up and running. So that's that's the way I get up. So cool. I'll I'll, anyways, I'll have to learn from that. Yeah. Anyways, thank you so much, everyone, for this wonderful oh. session and looking forward to the to the second four sessions starting next week. Okay. Cool. Great. Okay, okay. everyone. Bye bye. Yeah. Thanks. Right. Have a good week, bye -bye. everybody. Bye bye. bye, -bye.